Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And if you're joining us for the very first time, you have, and I say this every episode, but you have picked quite the episode to join us. This is our first volume three, which is quite exciting that uh, maybe a year and a half ago, volume twos were just starting up and now we have our first volume three. And we'll get more into that in a moment. If it is your first time and you like what you're listening to, be sure to like and subscribe, leave us a review, let us know how we can make the podcast better for you guys. If you want to get in on the conversation with other fans of good music and also to communicate with us, then go to our Instagram and Facebook page at Good Music Podcast. There's lots of info and information on when new things are coming out and maybe what the next artist could be. And if you want to suggest an artist for us to review, which we like to tailor this podcast to you guys, you can suggest it there. And you can also suggest volume twos someone has yet to suggest a dream theater volume two i'm waiting on that so you know <laughs> um and if you really love good music you consider good music like a fine wine um or a good well put together sandwich as we use that analogy a lot in our bad music podcast then go to our patreon page there's a link in the description you will get for just a couple bucks a month um early access to the normal episodes and exclusive access to our bad music podcast, which we are coming up on our tournament here in a few weeks for the worst song that we've reviewed in the bad music podcast. So if that sounds like a whole lot of fun, which that will be a whole lot of fun, then definitely you're going to want to check that out. But if all you do is listen to this episode, we appreciate that so, so much. The podcast obviously would not be here without you guys. So Anyway, and let's start our first volume three ever. So uh, let's, for those of you who don't know, every month, first of the month, first week of the month, we do a volume two. So we will revisit an artist that we have already talked about um, and we'll dive deeper into particular era or type of music that they do. Sometimes we would do epics. Sometimes we would do live music. Um, And this case is our first volume three. So we are talking about, who are we talking about, and what's the spin, Lucas? All right, so we're coming back to a band that no one will be surprised that I was eager to get back to, and that is Queen. Yes. One of the four pillars. Your favorite of the pillars. Yes. Wow. Um, yeah. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Queen. So mm-hmm. at the beginning of the year, I already knew that I wanted to do this some point and take advantage of, of this milestone. But um, since we had done a Queen episode like September of last year, I was just like, the only way I can justify doing a Queen episode again this year is if I push it all the way to the end of the year. to give mm-hmm. at least some distance not feel like I'm unnecessarily favoring Queen. But you but, a little bit. But, but of course. 
<laughs> all all four of the pillars are gonna somewhat be um uh favored but it's just because that's just it's what i love i know that and they're also bands that have a large catalog of great songs that i have plenty of material to construct episodes out of it's not bands that have you know two or three good albums um all four of my pillars are bands that have made at least 10 great records yeah at least mm-hmm. and so with with varying um phases of you know just stylistic changes to where it doesn't all sound the same and you know just bands that have had a great longevity and man queen would have kept going had they had their career not been cut short by the death of uh, Freddie Mercury, which also this is the 30th anniversary of just a couple days ago from the yeah. time of this recording. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this year is a milestone in two regards. Um, but we in this episode um, are going to be looking at the early years of Queen. So our first episode was kind of just like a a introduction like all six of the songs on that episode were hits. We had uh we had talked like stuff like Bohemian Rhapsody and Somebody to Love and Crazy Little Thing Called Love, Under Pressure, Don't Stop Me Now, You're My Best Friend, like all six of those songs being like icons that everybody knows pretty much. Yeah. Um and then our second episode was about them as a live band. And we talked about the Great Rock Montreal concert. Mm-hmm. And we talked about a couple more big hits, but also got to talk about a couple more obscure or live favorites. Um, so now we're going to almost really, this is going to be our great deep cuts episode because there's only one hit on this song because this is during the period really before they were famous. And it's, it's a very unappreciated underrated part of their discography that is so weird to think about because the cover of queen 2 is like iconic oh yeah it's it's gone on to become like well the main reason it's become so iconic is because they recreated it for the bohemian rhapsody video okay that's a good point (laughs) yeah that was that was kind of because that was the moment when that image became famous and then people went back to that record afterwards because they're like, oh, this has the same picture as Bohemian video. So it was a bit of a retroactive iconicness. Although it was, it still created some buzz and some stir around the band when it first came out because for a, for a second album to have an image that daring, that's a, that was a pretty bold move. What do you mean? I mean just because like there's, you could almost say that 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 image is a bit pretentious just with how theatric and Uh, and and over the top it is for an unknown band to go for an image like that that's kind of like an image that's reserved for like a really iconic group but freddie always believed that they would be the greatest in the world hmm. there's a there's a there's a famous moment in a diner before they had even made their first record and he's sitting at the table and he almost seems um sad or upset and he uh they said freddie what's wrong and he said uh i don't want to be famous 
I want to be a legend. And he stands up and like does a big uh, flourish with his arms. It was just like, even at that <laughs> period before they had even made anything, like he believed that they would go to the top. And wow. he's also, he's also been stated, cited later in the fact saying like, cause one of the things that queen was always criticized by, by the press and the music critics was that they always came across as incredibly arrogant I mean, to be able to write a song called We Are the Champions, it that that also takes a bit of balls because people didn't initially interpret that as a everyone unifying come together. It was initially portrayed as a we're better than everyone else re- record. Kind of saying that Queen is the champions, not everyone is the champions, which is what the original message was. But, hmm. but Freddie... Uh, was just like you have to have arrogance in yourself and i know that kind of sounds ridiculous but you have to believe that you can do it and that you're going to make it otherwise you're not going to so yes to a certain extent you have to be arrogant you have to believe in yourself and know that you have what it takes to make it all the way to the top that's fair and and they they i'm i won't necessarily say they but freddie in particular knew that they we're going to be a huge group and that charisma and that daring is very apparent in their early records because they don't hold back even in their early embryonic stage they knew that they had something that was going to be revolutionary they were constantly pioneering and trying things that really no one had done before or at least definitely not to the extent that they were doing it to Mm mm-hmm yeah so some some of this stuff sounds very well developed like it uh-huh. does it doesn't sound like what you'd expect one of those uh, uh long standing bands to have in in their early career yeah be like oh like I can see what they're trying to get at I can see how this leads to later in their career but I mean the songs that we're gonna talk about are full fleshed out theatrical production quality stuff this is legit music it's not like an early years kind of thing where it's like let's look at how this is going to develop like this is this is some serious yeah it's not it's not good just for a band starting out like it's like most other like low level rock bands would have been like that would have been like their signature songs and these are these songs except for one of them was just relegated as a deep cut, a B-side. One of the things I really, uh, well, I won't say that I realized this because I've always known it, but that I remembered about Queen doing this is just how deep their discography is. Mm -hmm. That they have so many of their great songs are not just the hits, but all these other like just album only gems. You're just like, good Lord. They didn't just, concentrate on the hits and then everything else is like yeah cool whatever when you look at when you look at even their top 50 there's some hits that are lying outside of it because just their deep cuts are so strong Um, but before we get too much further we need to do our first thoughts oh right so i mean i'll just go ahead and i'll just go ahead and say my first thoughts i'm at a 10 everyone knows that that's really not going to change so I'm more grant where especially after two episodes 
Where where do you stand on Queen coming into this episode? So I mean, I wasn't on the first Queen episode because that was the first one you That's did true. Before, before there was any co-host, right? This is this is weird. This is our first Queen episode with exactly one co-host. And I, <laughs> I feel like that that combination leads to the maximum amount of Lucas thoughts. So this is just going to be a giant Lucas rant, which will be really exciting for me because I get knowledge I'll, and the listeners as well. I'll try not to rant too much. I'm going to no, control myself. That's... We're even starting early tonight because <laughs> I'm anticipating that I'm going to talk a lot. Yeah, we started an hour and a half early. So, I mean, the listeners can look at the time, but I guess you're anticipating like a four hour episode or something, but I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, it's jury's still out from our perspective, but no. So my first thoughts, I don't really know where I am. I have to say I'm at a seven because I really liked the, I really liked the, um, live episode that we did. Um, I felt excited both with this set and that other set to listen to the songs. I listened to this set pretty much on repeat today. I was just, uh, in the lab, you know, all day today doing some research at university as they would say and i just <laughs> I, I got i got lost in the music you know and yeah. as short as these songs were they were so jam-packed and stuff and i feel like that's something that's very um what should i say signature of queen where a song like bohemian rhapsody is maybe six and a half minutes long but there's so many very distinct very iconic parts to it um so that's something that I see as being uniquely queen, maybe not uniquely queen, but that's something that they do very, very, very well. Um, and I appreciate that. Right. That's the frog side of me. That's like, Ooh, yeah, cool. Different parts. Of the world. So yeah. I have to say, like, I know a lot of the hits. I like a lot of the hits. I actually have not seen Bohemian Rhapsody the movie. Oh, interesting. Um, so when that came out, I felt like it was a, it was a good thing because it brought a lot of, people who are kind of on the fence of, of Queen to suddenly obsess over them and then filter out all of the hits. So when I was listening to the music in their car, I could just listen to all the, all the good stuff, right? Uh, but I never really, like, dug into Queen myself. Probably the furthest I ever went, there was, like, one YouTube video talking about innuendo, and I thought that was kind of cool. But that was, like, the only... Was it from uh, Polyphonic? Maybe. Maybe, Where it was like uh, the title of the video was their their other hit besides Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, it was it was something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great channel. I I get a lot of great info from that. Well, there you go. So there's there's our uh, further listening already. But... Oh man, well <laughs> when we when we do an episode on their on their later years, Innuendo for sure is going to be on there. Right, but but I never I've never listened to a full album. Well, this is this is a uh, this is going to be my goal then is to get you interested enough to start getting into some of their albums. Okay, that's. I want to. Kind of I feel my, like I. It's been I feel my like post episode philosophy from yeah. like recently, and so I have I'll just have to determine which of the three that are represented here, but all of them are like show a lot of promise. Like I looked at some of the track listing, and I recognize a lot of the track names from all three of them. Yeah. Which is kind of surprising. So I have to say I'm at a seven, 
but that's a very nebulous seven. I don't, I don't think that's a solid, like I could be at a six and not know it because I just don't know enough. Or I could be at an eight because I don't know how much I do know. It's a, it's a weird spot. But Queen is one of those good. bands that is, I would say the easiest band, maybe next to the Beatles of just having so many things that people know, but just aren't aware that it's them. Yeah. It's Probably. one of my favorite games to play with people is bet you didn't know this Queen song. Right. Or like recognizing the track title. Yeah. Like two of them here I recognize but never have heard the song. Uh-huh. In in my life. But anyway. I'm curious to know uh, what those are. Yeah, I feel I'm like uh, I feel like it's time to finally push you over the cliff. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. because I feel like that hadn't happened yet to where you're just like actually getting into the records because again with with as great as their deep cuts are like every album i would say there's only one album that i don't particularly enjoy but there's still some great songs on it so Um, are are they like uh are they like the police where they have like a perfect run other than that one oh gosh they have a couple of great runs um man uh I mean, the first record is is a little hit and miss, although it's still really good, and that's mm-hmm. the self titled. And um, it's just the the moments that are not as good is just the stuff where you're just like, yeah, you can s- still tell that there's a bit of searching on finding their style and finding what's unique to them. But then there's the other half of that record is just like, oh man, this is this is great. Um, mm-hmm. Queen two is front to back amazing and i would say that they are front to back amazing all the way through the game which is let's see that's so two sheer attack night of the opera day at the races news the world jazz that's a seven album run of just like all those records being like this is incredible maybe only one or two bum songs on it everything else being top shelf so is, uh, is that is that considered like the the classic? That would that would be when they were most popular. Like, um, although they still weren't super popular on Queen Two, the third record, Sheer Heart Attack, that's when they got big. And then Night at the Opera was the fourth one, and that had Bohemian Rhapsody on. That's kind of like that was the explosion record. Uh, Sheer Heart Attack gave them momentum. Because Killer Queen was on there, and that went all the way to number two on the charts, and um, and so it's just like that was the record that was just like, okay, you know, you're big, but you still could potentially be a one-hit wonder. And then Bohemian Rhapsody and Night at the Opera comes out, and that was kind of when they became one of the biggest bands in the world, and they stayed pretty on top all the way through the game. In fact, the game was probably when they hit their biggest all time. Because those that album has their only two number one U.S. singles, oh, with wow. "Crazy Little Thing Called Love" and another one, "Bites the Dust." Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, so, and another one, "Bites the Dust," is still worldwide their best-selling song because it was so big in America. That's makes sense. Though. It's got the. Uh got that iconic bass line everybody knows that mm-hmm. everyone who's at least three years old knows that song yeah 
um, but then that was when they kind of had their their dip. Um, they released uh, in '82 an album called Hot Space, and that's kind of their universally panned record. It's a it's a it's a very electronic dance club record, and it it's the it's the one record where it's just like this doesn't really sound like Queen. They kind of got lost in the in trying to recreate another one by Sadus because the thing that made that such a huge hit was that it was a dance record that that mm. song was such a huge dance hit and so they they kind of chased that and freddie in particular really chased that and just got a little bit lost stylistically uh the works in 1984 was a was somewhat of a comeback really really strong record um got them you know a couple more hits that had radio gaga and i want to break free on it and oh. And then right after that is when Live Aid happened, which was the huge, probably the, their most important moment. And that kind of like started the second great Queen streak. So I would say The Works was the beginning of another great streak. Um, that until uh, Freddie died in 91. So, so really it's just Hot Space. Hot Space is really the only, and then I mean, you have the posthumous record Made in Heaven which was as good as it could have been, but you know it's also made up of old stuff that was never really meant to be released. wasn't good enough to make the cut on a on a normal record. But there's also some really incredible moments on it. But it it does it does kind of hold. So I would say there's of the what fifteen albums that they made. I say there's only three that aren't all time greats. And that's the first one, Hot Space and Made in Heaven, which came out after he died and was made of leftover material. So you've got everything else, I mean, is just, again, you'll probably find one, maybe two songs. I was just like, ah, that doesn't work too well. But everything else is just like, wow. I mean, when I was, I was putting together the ranked playlist, and it's like you're in like the one twenties, and you're just like, "Good lord, this is a great song." Wow. So, <laughs> so, so yeah. What is this at the BBC thing that precedes their uh, eponymous album? So that was a live record at uh, the BBC studios, where they just they they I believe recorded some of that before the first record even came out, just kind of as a promotional tool. Uh, okay. So it's 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 everything on there appears on either the first or the second record. Okay. That makes sense. So it's kind of it's it's like a demo ish. Yeah. So and really that wasn't released before the first record. It was just recorded before, so it has an earlier date on Spotify. Ah. Okay. I guess you know. So, um, so let's let's kind of set the boundaries for for the timeline for this episode. Okay. So the first two records absolutely fall in the early years, and I would say like the sheer heart attack kind of has its feet in both the before the early era and the the big breakthrough because that album has both of 
both elements in it. It still retains a lot of the the daring experimentation and the hard rock, almost prog-like tendencies of the first two records. But also it has a lot of the pop, a lot of the camp, a lot of the um a lot of the eclectic nature that would that would really become synonymous with queen style starting with a night at the opera um so queen in this early period has a very distinct sound that kind of is unique to this time period um i always say that what one of the tricks that made queen such a a long lasting band was that there were only two things that really anchored down what constituted the Queen sound. One of them was that layered vocal approach. Um, you can always tell a Queen song when you hear those layered background vocals. That was mm -hmm. one of their trademarks. And then the other mm -hmm. thing being Brian May's guitar. Oh, yeah. Maybe That's the most sad. unique guitar sound ever created. It's so... It's so... I don't know. It's so weird. It's, it's so, and there's a reason why. And um, if you didn't know this, Brian May actually built his guitar when he was like 12 years old with his dad. And it was made from a, um, a recycled mantelpiece from their living room. Whoa. And it's called the Red Special, and he still has it, still plays it. So there's only one red special. You will never be able to get another guitar that sounds like it. But on top of that, he also has an amp that was built by John Deacon, the bass player, called the DC amp. <laughs> and or a DC or Deaky, you could I, I don't know because it's a C and I don't know whether which one you go with, but probably Deaky. Now that I think about it. Um, so he actually didn't have that on the first record, though, which is why the guitar does sound a bit different and not as stand out as far as sound on the first album. Mm -hmm. Once Queen 2 comes around, that's when John had built it. Because when he was, before he joined Queen, he was studying uh, electrical engineering in college. Or in, in Britain, they would say at university. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he that's that's just what he did he did he knew how to do all that stuff and so he built that amp and that's what he used in every uh studio recording afterwards he didn't take it live with him because it was a one watt uh amp is it do we say watts or volts with amps i, I think it's i think it's watt one i watt would amp. i would hope that you would know i'm not a guitar player so i'm allowed to get away with not knowing that stuff i believe um, it's watt but it's one if watt. If it's one which, volt, man, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> yeah, one watt, though, which is, you know, it's going to get you some sound, but it's not like, it's not going to blow away a concert venue. Yeah, it'll... Which is... It'll sound like a phone call. Yeah, which is not going to, you know, when and when you listen to their live stuff, it doesn't sound, it doesn't have that as unique sound. Of course, mm. you still have a bit of uniqueness with the Red Special, but then you have this amp that, he used in every studio uh, recording. Rarely ever departed from that combo. And then there was a third thing that makes his guitar playing so unique is that for a pick, he uses a British coin instead mm. of a pick. I could tell there was something of that of that nature. As soon as you said for a pick, I'm like, it's a coin. Because you can definitely hear that on like the first song. 
that there's a little bit of like, you can't really put your finger on it. But now that you say that, it makes so much sense because it sounds very Billy Gibbons in technique. Yeah. So you put those three things together and you've got a guitar sound that nobody else has. Like you, no one has even tried to, to create this sound. It's so uniquely Brian May. And also it's a sound that he could do so many cool things with, including his ability to do a guitar orchestra. Oh yeah. And um, we'll get a sample of that in this first song, but it's not the only time that he does it. I think one of the most hilarious ways he did it was on the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. He does the 20th Century Fox fanfare with just his guitars. And um, there are there are songs where he legitimately recreates every single instrument that would be in an ensemble. Like there's a song on their fourth record called Good Company where he like does a track for every single bit where he's like, okay, this is the trombone and he plays it like he would have trombone this is the this is the trumpet here are the woodwinds here's the here's the tuba and like he painstakingly does like a 24 piece dixie band um to create this this guitar symphony so does he like alter the sound so it sounds closer to the instrument um not particular because again it always sounds like that red special but just i think it's more in the way that he approaches it like the way that his technique to playing it rather than the sound but i'm sure that he does to a certain extent but like every single thing you hear it sounds like you know it's not like a oh that sounds exactly like a trumpet but just slightly off it's okay. it's i i don't even know if i can really adequately describe you kind of just have to go listen to it but um our first song you can kind of get a taste for how he's doing that to where he's you know he's still using the that guitar but he's he's able to squeeze so much variety out of it yeah and then I mean, another thing he is that brian does yeah he is a g he literally is he has his doctorate in astrophysics yeah yeah his proper title is dr brian may and don't you forget it. Uh, one of the other things that he really pioneered, in, and also in a way to where I don't hear too many guitar players do it, um, is this um, is his delay taping. Not delay in the way that the Edge uses, but to where he'll actually play something, and like a full bar later, it'll repeat itself. To where he starts to harm, he harmonizes with himself, like uh, Brighton Rock. Yes, exactly. That's that's the signature use of that. I I yep. I remember listening to that song for the first time, and I'm I was just like, this is like, this is something that has been copied since then, but not. It's just not the same. Like uh, Eddie Van Halen's Cathedral, I had discovered that before uh, discovering Brighton Rock, and then when I listened to Brighton Rock, I'm like, oh my gosh, this precedes that, and he's doing uh -huh. more. Like he's by almost he's, ten years. Yeah, he's doing more, th and I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna crap all over Eddie Van Halen. I love him, right? But Cathedral was a bit is, of a failed experiment. I like it. I, you know, I have a soft spot for that album, but that's a debate for another episode. But I'm, 
what I'm trying to get at is that Brian, Dr. Brian May, um, has the ability to see the potential in his instrument that other people can't see. Yeah. He, and, he approached it in such a unique way. And again, right. just all these things um, um, add up to a guitar sound that is like no other. Yeah. And an approach that's like no other. So because of that, as musical styles and, and uh, fads changed, they were able to move along with it because they weren't stuck in a particular sound. As long as you had that guitar, and as long as you had those big vocals, they were kind of free to write whatever they wanted. It's kind of like how we talked about with Phoenix, how they were like, the, our biggest compliment would be that we don't belong to any genre and people can't pin us to anything. It's, it's, it's the same with Queen. They didn't get stuck as a, oh, they're a hard rock group. They write hard rock songs. Like, that's what ACDC is. You know, it's by design that they became so formulaic, but also it made it to where they can't really experiment. They can't try out other styles. Queen has played literally every single possible genre of music you can think of. They've done uh, lounge bar jazz. They've done, like, baroque classical music they've done hard rock and heavy metal they've done prog rock they've done cabaret and opera and um rockabilly blues like literally you name it they've done it hmm. and yet it always sounds like them it doesn't sound like they're just going well oh this is weird why did they go in this direction they somehow do it while always sounding like themselves. Except for Hot Space. Uh, to, the, to a particular point, yes. <laughs> um, you can still tell it's them. Really what mm -hmm. it is, is it was, a, it was a precursor to Freddie Mercury's solo record, which he only did one of those, and it's a dance record. The biggest thing being that the rest of the band feels quite missing from that album because it's very synth machine driven. Mm. But yes, I would say that of all the records, that's the one that sounds the least like Queen because um, you're, a lot of the songs are missing Brian May's guitar sound. Um, it's missing Roger Taylor's very distinctive drum pattern. We haven't even talked about what Ryan... Brian, Roger brings to the table, Blech. Um, which I believe I've done that in the previous episode. So to prevent myself from ranting too much, I'll I'll just leave it at that. Oh, um, okay. But let's talk about. I I got into this topic to say what defines the sound of their early period, right? And their early period is very heavy metal. There is there is a you could almost say that they sound a bit like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin at times. Hmm. Um, and I didn't even pick some of the heaviest songs from this time period. You listen to something like Son and Daughter, or even like listening to Keep Yourself Alive um, with that you got Stone Cold Crazy from this time period. Which, I mean, Metallica covered it, and pretty much the only thing they changed is 
Metallica throwing in some F-bombs. But, like, musically, they pretty much, like, copied it, which just shows how heavy of a song it was to begin with. Yeah, they just they just put some more distortion and some yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you've got you've got songs like Great King Rat and Liar, um, Modern Times Rock and Roll, which has a incredible like a it's it's fast. It's back It's 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 heavy. They were a band. If if you had listened to the first Queen record and then told them that in two albums they would make something like Killer Queen. You probably would not have believed it. Hmm. That that first record has very few light moments to it. It's it's pretty it's pretty balls to the wall most of the record through. And it's also very proggy. A lot of their longer songs come from their first couple records. Um after the second album, they rarely went back into the six minute realm. That's kind of when they started to shorten their stuff. Um, Also, a lot of the lyrics for their first couple records are very fantasy inspired. So not necessarily singing more traditional love songs like they eventually would. Now I say traditional as in just like just singing about love, which was Freddie's favorite thing to write about. But all of his lyrics... And the early records are he's are about this imaginary land that he's created in his mind. Like it's they're almost concept records, almost, almost. If Freddie had written all the songs, then they probably would have been because the songs that he writes definitely have a feeling of being in the same universe. Um, there was there was this legitimate like imaginary land that he created with his sister when he lived in India and like that's where he pulls from and there's there's even cross references to each other between songs um there's there's going to be two songs that are that do take place in the same universe in this set tonight on different records or on different records oh that's cool i like that yeah so they were not a I love you baby please hold my hand I want to be with you type band in the early period. They occasionally had songs like that but that was not their main thing. They were kind of a bit of a pretentious art rock heavy metal band. Art rock. In fact, their their first uh their first hit was takes place in Freddy's fantasy land. Their what is their first hit? Can I ask seven, that? Yeah, uh, Seven Seas of Rye. That's one of those that I knew. Look at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's their first hit. Went to number That's 10 it. on the UK charts. Wow. So, now, am uh, I correct in assuming that they are a band that had no number ones or like two number ones or something like that? Uh, so they had two in the US, and it's it's – their most American sounding songs, pretty much. Crazy Little Thing Called Love and Another One Bites the Dust. Right. Um, they had three UK number ones. Um, well, more than that, but that's because Bohemian Rhapsody went to number one like three times. 
Um, and then Under Pressure was a UK number one, and Innuendo was a UK number one, which is, that's the weirdest one. The weirdest one. Because it's just, it's, it's, it's weird timing-wise and, and songwriting-wise that it went to number one, but it definitely deserved to. It was just not one that you probably would have guessed. Yeah. Um, no. Oh, and I, and I believe uh, These Are the Days of Our Lives went number one as well. I can, I can, but... They have so many songs that are in the top. Wow. It's 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 kind of ridiculous. Like um here I'm I'm pulling up their their charts right now. Like um Killer Queen went number 2. Uh Somebody to Love went number 2. We Are the Champions Real Rocky went number 2. Um Crazy Little Thing Called Love went number 2. Uh, Radio Gaga went number two. I Want to Break Three went number three. A Kind of Magic went number three. I Want It All went number three. Um, so yeah, just, you know, tons of, of top five UK hits. Yeah, wow. No, I can imagine with, with the attention to detail of the, of the, uh, of the deep cuts of the deep tracks that you'll, you'll get that. Yeah. So I mean, just would would they get to the position where they would release an album and then multiple would be in the top five at once? Uh, I don't know if at once, but definitely they would, they had multiple huge hits off of every record. Interesting. Because it just seems like they, would have gotten to that point but i don't know i don't know my queen history this is the first time i've gotten like a real comprehensive overview kind of a kind of a context for a lot of the material right yeah so i mean things are gonna start making more sense as we get into more and more discussion and as i maybe listen to their entire discography later or maybe Wink, wink. Um, anyway, except for Hot Space, <laughs> that's yeah. gonna be that's gonna become the uh, the well, same anger. Here's uh, the thing, though. Do you know Do you know what's tucked in at the end of that record? Under pressure, but under pressure. The weird thing is, that's the only one that has anyone not on the band on it. You know, it's like the the magic of David Bowie made that album okay. Mm. Nah, I mean it's a. I would say it's a pretty even split between Queen and David Bowie on the magic of that record. Uh, not of that record. Of that album or that song. That's true. like it's because I mean they wrote all the music to that. Uh, John Deacon came up with that baseline, and um, each vocalist came up with their own parts. Neither of them told each other what to sing. But David wrote the lyrics, and he's the one that came up with the snaps and the claps. Hmm. So I would say it's it's a probably even 50-50 split between the two of them on making that song work. A true collaboration. It's, you know, David Bowie's not a, just a guest vocalist. You know, it's it's equal as much his contribution as it is Queen's. And there are a couple of good songs, like um, Words of Love is a great song off that record, and Cool Cat 
is a really fun song. Um, Dancer is pretty cool, although it's it gets a little corny. But there's some really cool guitar work on that one. Anyway, so, I continue. I continue to go off on rabbit trails. But what you're saying uh, is it's it's worth a shot. Yes, I would say it's still worth listening to. Okay, it's just it's not on near the same level as the rest, and there are a couple of songs that are embarrassingly bad. One mm-hmm. of them. One of them is going to be in our in our in our bottom six in our after hours segment. <laughs> oh yeah, it is. Oh, <laughs> uh, that one. That one was pretty funny. Anyway. Yeah. Um. So, how did we even get off on that? I remember. Uh, and I think we were talking about hit singles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Seven Seas of Rye was the first one. Listeners, I hope that you're very patient this episode because. If he gets me off on a subject about Queen, I'm just gonna go off yeah. into that into yeah. whatever direction he launches me. Yeah. Uh, but that's also gonna be part of the fun of this. This is yeah. this is definitely a a dissertation in Queen. <laughs> yeah. I I do feel like of all bands, this is the one that I I just know the sheer am- most amount of data. Sheer and facts. Yeah. Sheer heart attack. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah, that early that early period is not as much centered around writing hits. It's more about kind of creating these grand musical declarations. Like I was saying earlier, the first record is the most raw Queen record probably ever made. Um, it's the one record where I would say that the production value isn't quite there yet. But there's, you know, that's understandable because whenever they went to record that first record, they only got to record like in the leftover times that they just didn't happen to have anyone. Like the majority of that record was recorded between two and five in the morning, most nights. Oh, wow. Because it was just, that was just time that nobody was there because they recorded at Trident, which was a huge studio at that time. Elton John was at the height of his career recording there. Paul McCartney was recording there. Um, like, it was kind of one of the happening studios. And so Queen was kind of just lucky to get whatever leftovers that happened to be in the schedule. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, and the fact that they were kind of on a tight schedule because they didn't, they weren't given a lot of money to make the first album because it was just like, you're an unknown band. We don't know who you are. You know, we'll just, we'll, you can, you'll get what we give you as far as budget time and and availability mm-hmm. but still considering that it's amazing that that first record sounds as good as it does yeah and you know you can you can tell that they really went for it now before we get further let's talk about since we're talking about the earlier let's talk about the origin of the band yeah okay and kind of kind of exactly how everything started so if there was one kind of starting member, it's Brian May. Brian formed the first version of what would eventually become Queen. Um, him and a, uh, and a friend of his, um, I, kinda, I do forget his name because he's, he's s- such in the beginning part of, of the band, Tim Staffield. I didn't even have to look it up. I just it just came back to me. 
Um, Brian May and Tim Staffield formed a band called 1984 in like the early 60s, like in 63, 64. And um, it went through a couple of lineup changes. And then finally they, um, they broke it up, but then kind of came back together and created a band called Smile. And uh, they had put a, uh, an ad for a drummer and that's when Roger Taylor came in so Roger joined Brian's band Brian formed Smile with Tim Sh- with Tim Staffield and Roger joined that band and they recorded a couple demos mm-hmm. and, and one of the songs that they wrote together as a trio uh, Doing Alright actually eventually came onto the first Queen Records one of the few Queen songs that was written by someone outside of the classic four members Um, because Tim Staffield had written Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And so eventually Tim just kind of got fed up and was just like, this, this band isn't going anywhere. You know, we've been doing this for three, four years and nothing's happening. I'm out. Um, Turns out that there was a guy that was constantly following them around named Farouk Balsara. And he was just like, oh, if I was in your band, I would do this. I would do that. You need me in your band. And they were like, okay, sure. You're, you're a pretty good singer. Come on up. And so that's when Freddie Mercury joined the band. That's his real name? That's his real name is Farouk Balsara. He's, he's, from a, he's from an island called Zanzibar, which is off the coast of Africa, kind of close to Madagascar. What? And yeah, I know. Most people don't know that. And he he went to boarding school in India. Like pretty much he's Middle Eastern Indian heritage. And then moved to London when he was like 14 years old. Because remember, India was still a British colony during that time. So mm-hmm. the so you know, he he even though he grew up speaking Parsi, he also equally learned English at a young age. So it was not super uncommon that they went to that they eventually moved to England because where they were living was a kind of a, a territory mm-hmm. of of the of the fading at that time fading uh, British Empire. So yeah, so he comes in and he had gotten the nickname Freddie while he was at boarding school, but he was known during that time as Freddie Balsara. And in 1970, right when he joined Queen, that's when he changed his last name to Mercury because he knew that that would be um, a, a more mysterious, a more alluring, and a more androgynous name to have. Would would the would the would the legend of of Freddie Balsara have been as big as Freddie Mercury? Probably not. That's still a cool name, but yeah, no, not at that time. At that time, to have a an exotic sounding name was not cool. That would have probably been more popular, like in the eighties and nineties, but not definitely not in the seventies, and certainly not in the sixties. That's a good point. So, and there is even a there is even a a song on the first Queen record where he says the line, "Mother Mercury, what have you done to me?" 
and he tells the band that's that's me that's my mother i am mercury and that was the first time that they had heard him say that and i was like okay sure whatever they didn't think he was serious and then he went and legally changed his name to mercury and they're like oh okay he he's serious about this okay okay, i guess you're freddie mercury now it it sounds like in the early days they kind of just put up with him yeah kind of because he hadn't completely revealed himself to be a superior vocalist and frontman. He was still working on it. And he was the one that really kind of strong-armed them in changing the name to Queen. From Smile. Yeah. Um, both Brian and Roger had said that they were not on board with with that name. But that Freddie was able to finally wear them down. And then they said, as as time went on, they were just like, oh, yeah. Queen is the perfect name. Freddie had said that he wanted a name that first off was simple and iconic. You know, these, he didn't like bands that had these long names or something that was really weird. It was just a simple one word, very powerful. It just, it just, it stands on its own. Mm-hmm. Second, he wanted something that was unquestionably British. And, yep. I mean, naming yourself after the monarch of the country immediately tells the world that you are a British band. You're not going to think that an American band is called Queen. It'd be like calling your name President. Yeah. So, and then the third was the uh, was the androgynous uh, gay connotation to it. Which, at that time, it's it's unknown whether he really was comfortable or even aware of his sexuality um it's it's the story freddie was very personal and very private about his life especially at that time he didn't really let people into what was going on and his major relationship we had talked about this in the uh in the live montreal episode was a was a woman named mary austin and so most people assumed that he was a, a straight guy with just some camp tendencies mm-hmm. and it was it was it was a bit more of once we got to the mid 70s that everyone started to go wait a minute maybe maybe not and that was when he broke things off with mary austin it started to become a bit more openly um uh, gay mm-hmm and when I say that, I don't mean that in the in the derogatory way. It's just that was just that's just the best way I can think to say it. Um, so, but yet at the same time, you look at his early outfits and the way that he talked and calling everyone darling and honey and um, and just the the very over the top theatrical cabaret way that he presented himself, and you can definitely feel that he was going for a specific and androgyny was the thing of rock and roll in the mid seventies. I mean, just look at David Bowie and Mark Boland from T-Rex and Lou Reed and, and Iggy pop. Like, you know, that was, that was the thing was the, um, the, the, the mystique, the mystery of it, of is he gay? Is he straight? Is he bisexual? I don't know. It could go any way, but, it's it's gloriously fantastic regardless and it lets you create this this image of yourself and freddie was very much about that he was just like with my 
my character that I present on stage. I'm not trying to show an image of who I really am. It's a character. It's something that I create. Just because I'm this way on stage doesn't mean that that's how I am in, in real life. I'm not trying to show who I am. I'm presenting something that I know that the audience wants. Confusing. A little bit. That's, I mean, it's to him, being a frontman was the same thing as being a an actor in a in a theater play. It's a role that he plays. I guess that's fair. And so he's just like, people always expect me when I come off stage to be this huge, ridiculous personality, and I'm not like that. I'm actually quite quiet. <laughs> and I'm I'm very I'm very reserved and very withdrawn. And people are very surprised when they find me. They're just like, but aren't you the man that's unafraid and prancing all over the stage being, you know, this ridiculous person? And they expect me to be like that in my everyday life. And I'm just not that way. <laughs> At, uh, Angus Young is the exact same. When he's off stage, he's like the most chill, relaxed person you'll ever meet. And I think in a way you almost have to be. To be yeah. able to sustain that energy for that amount of time, you can't be like that twenty four seven. Yeah, that's true. And so, um, and so, Freddie was really developing that part of his persona. When you look at like their early live stuff, you can tell that he he has an idea of what he wants to be, but he's still trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, the 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 command of the stage is not quite there especially not at the level that he would get at the late seventies, early eighties. And really all the way up until their final performances in 86. Um, by that point, there was no one that even came close to his level of control of an audience. I mean, if you just look at that Instagram story or that post that I had put on our Instagram of him at live aid, he was yeah. playing not, he was not playing to a queen crowd. That was not people that came to see them. Those were just normal people that came to see everyone else. And he instantly got them to do exactly what he wanted them to do. Wow. Without having to say anything. All he was doing was singing and doing it, and they just followed sweet because they fell in love with his charisma and with his stage presence. And so um, you can tell that he's not completely comfortable on the first album that he's still kind of towing his way through you can also his um his vocal approach is not completely there yet that it's a little more raw and he's not doing as many of the technically um proficient vocal passages but i would say that once we get to queen 2 that was freddie mercury's arrival as a incredible vocalist there's a huge jump between Queen and Queen 2. And you can tell that he has a lot more confidence and that he's willing to do some really risky stuff vocally. I mean, just look at something like March of the Black Queen and it's just like yeah. the guts to just go for a vocal composition like that on your second record when you're still pretty much unknown. It's just like, at that point, he knew. It was just like, yeah, I'm the greatest vocalist alive, and I'm going to prove it to you. There's the one song we have off the first record, too, is just so unorthodox. 
Just all around. Yeah. And, I mean, I certainly with the amount of layered vocals and the high harmonies that are way up in the stratosphere and the insane slides and you know. now you ready to you ready to hear something crazy what i don't know if you know this yet but those high harmonies are not sung by freddie that's roger taylor oh my gosh the the drummer uh-huh so like that big uh high note at the end of the opera section of bohemian rhapsody the I won't try and do that here because that'll hurt everyone's ears. But that's Roger Taylor. That's not Freddie Mercury. He act- he had the highest voice in the band. He, and they uh, did that live. even. Yep. Uh, well, no, well, no, because they never did the opera section live because but it was they just did that kind of stuff live. Oh yeah. Um, like uh, Freddie Mercury, a man with an incredible vocal range, called. Roger Taylor, the dog whistle of the band. If ever you hear a crazy high falsetto screech, that's going to be from Roger Taylor. He's just, he's, he's a really incredible singer in his own right. And so was Brian May. Um, they, they were integral parts of the queen layered sound that wasn't just all freddie's vocals which is what everyone's um assumption was there were times that it was just him like the intro to bohemian rhapsody um that's uh all freddie doing the background vocals but once you get to the opera section that's uh freddie roger and and brian john deacon never really did much background vocal work it was just not his thing Hmm. and he never sang lead on a on a Queen song where Brian and Roger usually got one or two songs per album that they sung lead on. Nice. Um, Brian, he kind of was responsible for doing the low end of the harmonies, but there are plenty of iconic Queen moments that are just Brian doubling himself. Like the intro to Fat Bottom Girls is only Brian May. There's no Freddie or Roger in that. That's just all Brian singing. That, uh, one of the hmm. okay. One of the songs in our set is is sung lead by Roger. Okay, this makes sense because I, I heard a different voice in there. I didn't know if it was. Uh, yeah, I was wondering if you had noticed on one of the songs that yeah. it was just like that doesn't sound like Freddie. Yeah, and I was thinking mm, maybe they had like a. a Another vocalist in like the early days, I don't know, <laughs> but that that makes so much more sense. Yeah. Um. So when you hear that that big vocal sound, that's going to be for the most part, and of course everything that they do, they double it and triple it and quadruple it to make it sound super big. But at the core, you've got Brian May singing the low harmony. You've got Freddie right in the middle. And then you got Roger sitting on top. Man, Roger's got to have quite the range because he also has a pretty, uh, pretty strong chest voice. Oh yes, he does. He has a like he would have been a rock star vocalist in his own right if he wasn't the drummer for Queen. There again, just think of that. Think of that big high note at the end of the Bohemian Rhapsody opera section. You'll get a good idea of how insane Roger's vocal range is. This 
This is interesting because I was fully expecting this episode to be like 50% Freddy and 50% oh by the way there's a great backing band. But like oh no. The band seems like they have like they could have all four been in their own bands and yeah. all four of those bands would have been great. And here's the other thing, all four of them are incredible writers. Oh, yeah. Like, I guess we'll have to go through, like, who wrote which song when we get there. Yeah, because all four of them have written monster huge hits. Wow. So, like, it's easy to kind of tell which ones Freddie wrote because they're the over-the-top insane ones, like Bohemian Rhapsody, Killer right. Queen, We Are the Champions, Somebody to Love. Uh, pretty much if it's, like, if it's ridiculous, over-the-top, theatrical, Freddie probably wrote it. Um... Most of your uh, big rock and roll songs, Brian wrote. So Brian wrote We Will Rock You. He wrote Fat Bottom Girls. He wrote um, Tie Your Mother Down. And um, he wrote I Want It All. Kind of just your big arena rock songs. Mm -hmm. uh, Roger obviously wrote all the songs that he sung on, but he didn't really start getting hits until the 80s, but, like, he wrote Radio Gaga and A Kind of Magic, which was a top three hit, although it's it's a song that I would say is very sadly underrated at this point, but it's a really great song. He wrote Breakthrough and These Are the Days of Our Lives, which is one of the most emotionally poignant songs that they ever made. Hmm. And then you got, and then you got John Deacon, who freaking writes another one, bites the dust, and you're my best friend, and I want to break free, which are three of the biggest. All three of them are in the top ten of my ranked playlist, by the way. Wow. But he wrote by far the least out of everybody. Like he only wrote like maybe one song an album, and that was if you really pushed him. He was the quiet one, the the dark horse, but man. When he would go, hey, I got a song, everyone turned and listened because it was likely to be a monster hit. So it sounds to me like they had some healthy competition in writing, and that's why all the deep cuts were so good because you wanted your tracks on the album to perform, outperform mm -hmm. everybody else's. Yeah, but also at the same time, they had to respect that whoever brought in the song got to have final say. And you didn't bicker too much with them because that's their song. But because they also knew that everyone was going to be bringing ideas, that it, there wasn't this feeling of, oh, how come all his songs get become hits? Like, they found out early on that, like, everyone was a hit writer. Mm -hmm. and, and Brian said that he believes the reason that they stayed together for so long and never changed members or broke up was because of the fact that they – there wasn't a monopoly on who was writing the hits and therefore making all the money. They, they were able to kind of be this, really the only other band that I can think of that was so able to every member write hits like that was the Beatles. In wow. most other bands, you kind of had one or two guys that were like the, the main songwriters. And then everyone else just kind of had to do what they're told had to be you know subject to who the songwriter was and go you're gonna play it this way it needs to sound like this 
And that was always the main reason why uh, bands broke up was because of royalty disputes and or creative differences. You had the songwriters that were really pushing, but you had the other guys who were like, I'm not a songwriter, but I don't like the direction this is going. With Queen, you never really had, except for Hot Space, that was the only time that the rest of the band kind of fought with Freddie about, I don't think that we should be doing this. And Freddie kind of kind of pushed them into that direction. But then kind of after the, after the album was done and it didn't perform well, he was just like, oh, okay, you're right. My bad. Let's, let's go back to how it was. That's good that he... Uh recognize that so even though freddie was the most iconic member of the band it was not his band it was i would say it was equally all four of them and it's it's telling that when they went off and did solo things it didn't work near as well because they all needed each other somehow these four incredible musicians that are the greatest of all time and what they did, they needed each other to come together to make Queen what it was. One of them was not Queen. It was all four of them coming together, equally bringing something that no one else could bring that made Queen so special and made them such great songwriters. That makes sense. So um, in this early in this early period, John was not writing yet. His first song came on Sheer Heart Attack. And it's, li- it's a song that's like a minute and 15 seconds long. What was? It's called Misfire. And it's actually a pretty catchy, cool song with some cool mm-hmm. moments. But it's also a, it's meant to be like a little mini song. You can tell it's his, it's his first time. And in fact, he didn't even want to put it on the record. And Freddie was just like, hey, this is a great song. Like, come on, let's do it. Hmm. And he kind of had to coax him. And then on the next album, on A Night at the Opera, he contributes You're My Best Friend, which is one of their all-time best. And a huge hit. And so, like, that's all it took. He just His second song that he ever wrote becomes a top 10 UK hit. Ever wrote? Yeah. Wow. I I wish I had that kind of luck or mm-hmm. i should say that kind of talent wow so but but they all supported each other they all they all made sure that the other one succeeded with their song that's nice i like that i just that just gives me warm feelings in my heart and they even got up to a point at the end of their career where they didn't even contribute a song to one person or the other if you were to look on the on the credit sheet, it would say all songs written and performed by Queen. Instead of saying, Freddie wrote this song, Roger wrote this song. Now, of course, we would find out just because they would tell us. But as far as like legally and licensing wise, every song that they wrote in their last couple albums was equally credited to all four. Is that not a normal thing, though? Like, no. I'm sure at that time it wasn't normal, but... No, definitely, and that still really is not because, again, you know, if you credit it to the whole band, then you got to split the money. Mm, good point. And if, and in most bands, you're going to have people that are not contributing as much as the other members. 
to where, you know, like say you've got a bass player that just comes in when the song's already all the way written and just puts his bass part down and is not in the is not actively contributing to the creation of the song. With Queen, that was happening. They would all four get together and everyone's bringing an idea. But then just if there was ever a gridlock, whoever initially brought in the song would get final say because it was their song. And so there would be times where someone would bring in a song and they'd be like, I don't know about this. I don't think we should do this. And sometimes they would relent and sometimes they would go, nope, this is the way I want it to be. This is the vision I have for it and you got to do it. Like that was how they followed Freddie with Bohemian Rhapsody. Brian and Roger both said that when they were making that song, they were like, I have no idea what this is going to be like. This could kill our career, but Freddie believes in it. It's his song. We need to help him achieve whatever is in his brain. Talk about a leap of faith. Cause that it really, really was. That really could have ended it because that is such a weird song. I mean, I remember the first time I heard that, I did not like it, like, at all. I thought it was just too weird. Obviously, I, I love it now, you know, and it helps that there was a cool guitar part at the end that, that I was like, okay, maybe it's not all bad. But it was just – it was just – I, I don't need like what even what year was that? That was seventy five. Yeah, and they would have been, I guess, kind of mainstream ish, right? Well, again, so, that was that was the song that they were counting on them being able to continue their career. So let's so let's talk. This will be the last thing that I'll allow myself to talk about because we're going long. Oh yeah, we were. Um, <laughs> um, so they make their first three records. And they get a number two hit with Killer Queen. And so they're one of the up-and-coming, most promising young bands out there. And uh, they're completely broke. They have no money because they signed a bad record deal. Mm. They were so poor that they were told that Roger cannot break drumsticks while he's on tour because they can't afford to replace them. Drumsticks. Aren't those so, like 20 bucks? Yeah. Like they were put, I don't, first off, I don't know how the inflation works and I don't know how to convert pounds to dollars, but they were on a 20 pound per week basis. I don't know if how that's, that translates to American dollars, but I think it's not like a lot. dollars in today's money. Yeah, if you do inflation and and currency exchange. That'd be my guess. Somebody can message us on Instagram if I'm wrong. Like, they were being royally screwed by their record label. And Freddie Mercury was pissed off. And pretty much told them, like, like he pretty he broke contract with them because he told them off and was just like you're you're thieves you're robbing us we have made you a number 2 worldwide hit and we have nothing to show for it mm. and so they found uh, a guy named John Reed who was Elton John's manager and pretty much told him just like do whatever legal thing you have to do to get us out of our contract and he said, okay, I'm going to get you guys out of your old deal, get you a new deal, 
but in return, you have to make the best album that you can possibly make. Because if I do this and your next album isn't huge, then you're you're dead. Yeah, wow, okay. Your no career practice. is not only over, like you're going to be in such a huge amount of debt that you might not get out of it. So it was a this was a make or break moment. While they while he was figuring out how to get them in a better financial situation, they were making a night at the opera and making Bohemian Rhapsody in particular. And and Brian May, the PhD in astrophysics, astrophysics, thought it was a good idea to to do this. Yeah, against his father's wishes, his father kept telling him, "You're stupid for doing this. You I mean, you have a college degree. Not only that, an advanced college mm -hmm. degree, and you're busy trying to become a rock star." To be fair, He's I would have said the same thing. He said that his dad didn't get it until he invited him to see them play sold out at Madison Square Garden. And he said that when his dad saw them at that venue, he was just like, okay, you were right. <laughs> I get it now. Yep. That makes sense. So, um, so yeah, that was... But we'll talk more about that when we do another Queen episode, or Volume Four will be that oh that that classic era. Of volume um, Four. So we'll 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 because it'll happen. It'll absolutely happen. It will happen. Yeah. But but that is the setting that they were in, making these first three records. They were broke. They still had their day jobs. Freddie and Roger both worked at a. Uh, at a secondhand clothes store. That's where Freddie found a lot of his outrageous outfits. And um, and so it wasn't until Killer Queen became a number two hit. He assumed he was just like, "We have a huge hit now. I don't have. I don't need this job anymore." Thinking that he was going to make all this money, didn't. And he was just like, "Well, that's not right." Yeah what i'd be thinking too yeah so um these albums these first three and to also to a, a, a certain extent the fourth record they were all um leaps of faith yeah they were they were making something that they were hoping would be big and you know it just took writing the greatest rock song of all time to do it the greatest rock song. Well, I mean, it would that's, definitely be in the running. That's that's a that's an argument that I could successfully make in a different episode. There there is an argument for all four of the members being the best at their instrument in rock, mm -hmm. or or best vocalist in the case of Freddie. And I mean, we talked about that plenty in the live episode of his, his just amazing vocal ability and command of the stage and all that but anyway that's another episode we have we have two other queen episodes by the way if this doesn't uh quench your thirst so with that i think we should uh we should get into the songs yes it's been, it's been quite a long first segment already yeah i mean i knew it would be yes so. good stuff about this this is the time that we would normally start recording. Yes, <laughs> that's true.
So um, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the six-ish songs that are uh, in this episode about Queen's early years. So stay tuned. We will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We have been talking about Queen for a long time in this Volume 3 episode already. And we've been talking about the early years and the uh, formation of the band and how the first three albums that were very key critical to their trajectory. And now it's actually time to talk about the six-ish songs that uh, we will be talking about in this episode to give a little bit more context to the things we've talked about, a little bit more concrete, some interesting stories that we wouldn't otherwise be talking about in the episode. If you want to listen to these songs, which we highly recommend that you do, um, down in the description of every single episode is a link to a Spotify playlist that has all of the songs from every single episode. And they're down at the bottom if you're listening live. If you're listening way into the future, you might have to search for them a, a little bit. Um, and we highly recommend you listen to them. It would be a great listening experience, um, and they have a nice flow from start to finish, and they're representative of the type of music that we're talking about that Queen puts out. So we said six-ish. There are nine listed, but some of them run together. So the nine songs go kind of fast. It sounds like it's overwhelming, but they uh, they flow together really nicely because they were designed that way. So as we get through them, we'll have to remember, or one of us, me or Lucas, will have to remember to remind you guys, this is the first song, this is the second song. So we're actually going to start off with a double song, um, which I guess is the opening of Queen 2, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. Yes, it, it is. Right. So we open with Procession into father to son yeah so i mean what a uh what a way to start a record i i think that this is a um this is a pretty bold statement to start your record off with this sums up kind of all of the flavors that you're going to be encountering throughout this album now, Queen 2 has a very interesting uh, way that it's put together. Instead of side 1 or side 2 or side A and side B, they have uh, the white side and the black side. That's interesting. And so... Um, all Is that the songs... way it is on the vinyl cover? Yeah, so uh, like if you were to open it, it's a picture of them dressed all in white with a white background. Ah, that is so cool. 
So uh, the white side is the first side. And all the songs are written by Brian May, except for one by Roger Taylor that he also sings on. And all the songs are more emotional, contemplative. Uh, Father to Son is definitely the heaviest song on side one, on the white side, side one. And um, the black side is exclusively written by Freddie. And it has all of the really heavy songs, all of the weird, wacky, zany songs, and just the uh, the high-energy stuff. You've got Ogre Battle and the Fairy Feller's Masterstroke, the March of the Black Queen, and Seven Seas of Rye on there. And it's just like, good Lord, that is just a, that's an assault when you get into that part. But you have more of your ballads on the first side. <laughs> and so... Um, so this starts off the white side with with procession into father to son. So procession is what we were talking about earlier with Brian May's uh, guitar symphony, right? And it mimics kind of like a funeral march, which actually pairs really well with with that album cover because it does kind of look like uh, Freddie has his hands up like he's laying down in a coffin. Yeah. And it's got this very morbid, dark death look to it. The whole album cover does. Yeah, it it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't help that he has very defined uh, bones in his face, so he almost looks like a corpse when he's doing mm-hmm. that. But yeah, I mean, it's got it's got like a really uh, the sound of procession is very dark and very yeah. like empty ish. Like it's raining and it's like overcast and it's like a Saturday at like ten thirty in the morning or something and and there's a funeral procession literally, mm-hmm. um, and it, I mean as soon as that guitar comes in and you were right we talked about this I think like after the uh, last after hours that as soon as that guitar comes in you can tell who it is it's yeah. pretty obvious because it's the iconic sound you know. And so really, this is the first song to feature that that iconic sound. That's true. That's to, where true. You're just, to where it's unmistakably Brian May and it's in the way that it sounds. Right. Um, so you have this great little intro and then you get in the father to son. And that's when that's when everything just kicks in. This is a a I'm going to say this a lot in this episode. Really, all these songs except for seven C's are. um are criminally underrated. None of these other songs are really known by the casual Queen listener. Yeah. And this was actually one of the last Queen records that I ever discovered. Mm -hmm. And I was already a mega, mega fan of Queen. Kind of, I just went through a period where I was just, I was collecting all of their records. And this was one of the last ones that I came to. Uh, just because I didn't, I didn't, I went to the ones that I recognized more of the hits on first. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the last ones I came to. And I remember this was the one that I would say most off, except for maybe Night at the Opera, that blew me away the first time that I listened to it. This, I think, is a contender for one of their best albums. Ooh. It's, it's, it's a really 
hidden gem. Again, everyone knows the cover, but most people don't know the songs on this album. And it's a shame because it's it's strong from start to finish. Yeah, I was I was surprised. I mean, just through this first song by the like it's it's definitely so clean. It's got that sound, right? But it's heavy somehow. Like there's some really heavy riffs in here. Mm-hmm. When you get to like, that middle part, like it's you can you can feel the the fury and the force during that instrumental section mm-hmm. with the guitar solo and like it's just like you could imagine Led Zeppelin doing something like this, right? But at the same time, somehow there's like a, a brightness to it, like during mm-hmm. the other sections, you know, when they do that do, 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 or whatever it is, right? Yeah, like that that breakdown. Yeah, that that part was just like. This is completely out of nowhere. Are we in a third song already? And and it it wasn't. It's like there's there's different. This is what I was talking about in my first thoughts. Like you jam pack so much stuff into one, you know, six seven minute thing that it's just oh man, I just got to. I'm listening to it right now, and I just got to the part where they do a huge harmony towards the end. Ah, so many parts to this. And- these songs, a lot of the songs in their in their first couple records aren't verse chorus structured. Yeah, they're very they very much work in a linear, working towards something. Yeah, and it's it's moving up rather than going back and forth, back and forth, and yeah. which is which is very much in the way that something like Bohemian Rhapsody is. Hmm. I, I Where it's it's not it's not traditional song structure. I love that about like first records because they can go one of two ways. Like it can either it can either be terrible or they can completely show their hand and not have that refined like pop song writing. And instead they do something completely how would you ever write that kind of thing mm-hmm. I, I was listening to of all things i was listening to megadeth's first record earlier um when i was driving here to record and i don't remember it being so like all of the songs on that record are very linear as well there's not as much verse chorus maybe like the first song right but a whole lot of those songs are just random riffs that are strung together but somehow they make sense it sounds like they're just having well they probably weren't having fun they're doing cocaine but like it sounds like they were like kind of having fun writing doing the writing process and that's what it feels like here right that they are enjoying the process of writing the music without wanting something from it um to reference another thing that happened to me recently i watch um this YouTube channel called um, the oh what is it called I can't remember anyway but it's this it's this YouTube channel all about um, now I'm gonna have to look it up it's all about like different stories and um, like how writing and writing themes and all this stuff show up in different movies and different like pop culture and things like that but they also you know reference like old parables and like old wives tales and stuff like that but um, they were talking about 
how, you know, some people get to the point where they hate writing, like writing music or writing stories or whatever. They hate being creative because they try to get something from it and they don't write for the sake of writing. Mm -hmm. And it starts to feel very bland. It it starts to feel very uh, uh, forced and it's not as good. It starts to sound generic and just like everything else. And when you're in like the early days of a band, it seems like they're like, this is the stuff that got you started. This is where the, the lightning in the bottle is, you know? So that yeah. stuff is you're willing to, they're very passionate about. It's going to be great. You're, you're willing to try things that you wouldn't have the balls to do when you're more successful and there's more pressure. Right, right. Because you, you're not wanting anything from it yet. You're just having fun. Yeah, it comes, it comes more naturally from the heart. So anyway, that was a long, that was a long way to explain. It's just, it's from the heart. Yeah. What, what I'm saying. So anyway. <laughs> um, this song was written by Brian May. It, it is, I feel like it is going to be important to say who writes everything. Because again, you have so many, you have four unique writers. Although John Deacon doesn't write anything in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, just because again, he hadn't really started writing songs yet. But um, this was uh, – Brian does have quite a few number of songs that are related to his parents. He he had a good relationship with his parents, but you can tell that there was kind of something unconscious that was gnawing at him. I think this the this, this seek of approval from his parents for what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, pretty much the whole point of this song is that it's a letter that a father has written to his son – trying to express to him how he feels and pretty much saying like, you won't understand what this means until I'm you're older and I'm dead and gone. But hopefully these words will guide you and help, help you to not make the same mistakes that I did. Wow. Okay. And so, and so, so I so almost, personal. I think that when you pair this with something like procession, this is, you almost get the feeling that this is a letter that a son is reading after his father has died. Like in the wake of the funeral, he's reading this message that his father has given to him, almost like to say, don't open this until after I'm gone. Because I think that all that also adds to the, uh, to the melancholy of the song there, there, even though it's, it's, it's bright and has some rocking heavy moments. There's also, a tinge of sadness like when the vocals come back in after that uh after the big instrumental section there is this there's this there's this somberness mm-hmm. and um and then of course you've got that great coda at the end that's almost that's really very 60s yeah and the I would say the, the the dominant voice you hear during that is Roger Taylor's. Oh yeah, there are some really high harmonies there. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. So yeah. so yeah, that's Father to Son. I think that it's I think that it's very underrated. They they didn't really play it live after like seventy five. Um, and I think that it's a song that, that, that people should go back and listen to, especially if you're into rock and roll and kind of more experimental music, because it, it goes in some very cool directions. 
It really, it really does. I really, so obviously we've started this off with something a little unexpected from Queen. And then from there we moved to something completely different. <laughs> I have because that's naturally where it it feels right because when you have a bunch of up-tempo songs you kind of just like okay let's this time we're we're putting song mm-hmm. reason for that is uh um because that in the, in the record and it just it's you get that natural lead in but also, I felt like it would be a good opportunity to just be like, you know what? I'm going to put the ballad where you don't expect me to put it. And that is I a should, white, yeah, white queen as it began. White queen. I thought it, I thought it was a really good transition. I didn't... I honestly forgot that some of them, by the time we got to the end of Father to Son, I forgot about the whole, like different songs leading into each other so i thought this was another section of father to son Mm -hmm. and then i looked up like halfway through and i'm like this is not this is a new song (laughs) it was just like it just you thought it transitioned so well you thought i was giving you like a nine minute song to start the set with i didn't it it happened it has happened okay rush volume two i'm just saying funeral for a friend oh that's true too that's true. But yeah, and so, you know, like I said, this is completely on the other side of Father to Son. We've slowed things way down. It's almost kind of freeform in a weird way. Yeah, this is, I think this is one of their most interesting songs because mm-hmm. it's so unique. Like, they don't have another song that sounds like this. And really, you, I can't really find many other songs that, that, that sound like this it's so creative again this is a song that moves more in a linear fashion i mean yes there's verses and choruses but it's it's not it doesn't feel like that Mm -hmm. and so this is another one written by brian and he actually wrote this when he was still at college and there was this woman that he was that he was deeply infatuated with, but he for three years couldn't get up the nerve to go talk to her and ended up never talking to her. She kind of just remained this elusive figure for him. Mm. And kind of the song is like this, this anguish love letter, kind of how when you're younger and you are still discovering love and feeling that when you develop feelings for someone you tend to overplay it like they're this goddess in your mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see them as more than a human, that they're almost angelic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't know about the crushes that you've had in, you know, middle school and high school, but, you know, you can, you can remember the feeling where it's just like, you almost think like, I will never be happy unless I'm with this person. Yes. Yes, we've that they we've all they had will that literally complete in, you in seventh or eighth grade. Yeah, I remember. I remember that. 
Yeah, and so that's that's pretty much what the idea of this song is that she is she is a queen to her, to him, yeah. and and no matter how much he wants to be with her, he can never sum up the courage to to go and and talk to her and ask her out and and to actually you know make real what he's fantasized about yeah and so this is this is a love song but it's a love that he feels like he can never have and that he's not worthy of because he sees her as so far above him that is i mean you're right it also just sounds because this topic like there are other songs like this but not sonically is there a song like this yeah man it's so atmospheric it's so um it takes its time developing its emotions yeah man um this is also a an instance of where brian may is so good at um at creating these these symphonic moments with the guitar like before that final chorus comes in when he does that he got he's got the the layered guitars around it where he's like doing harmonies mm-hmm. and create and just creating this huge wall of space or wall of sound mm-hmm. and another cool thing that he does is that that sitar sound mm-hmm. um, he does that by by putting piano wire under his guitar strings. What? <laughs> so he uh, he's doubling his guitar strings by putting piano wire with them because he's not he doesn't he's like I don't have a sitar but I can I can use piano wire. Oh, I see. Okay. Ah. He, he does it on a on a future song called Jealousy, which is a a really good song as well. Very underrated. Mm, yeah okay i i'm i'm hearing it now that is so weird because it sounds it sounds genuine that is and that's that's what they were so good at is that if they wanted to get a particular sound they didn't just like go and get that thing they figured out how to make that sound with what they had seeing hearing about some of the tricks that they've used to get the specific sound they want is is pretty hilarious to listen to. Like, there's a song on Night at the Opera called Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon, which is, like, a minute long, and it's the goofiest but also most adorable thing that you've ever heard. And um, to get the vocal sound that they wanted, they had Freddie sing into a microphone that was then led to a speaker that went into a trash can and in that trash can was another microphone that then picked up that sound that went to the studio, uh, to the soundboard, where that was the sound that was coming through. What? Okay. Because they wanted it to have like this almost like megaphone sound to it. Oh. Like almost like it was like on an old timey radio. Okay. And so it's just they did lots of problem solving. One of the things that you will see on all 70s um, Queen records is this little tag that says no synthesizers were used. And the reason that they put that was because people kept asking them who the synthesizer player was because they had all these weird zany sounds 
And they're like, no one. We did that ourselves. Particularly, Brian found all these crazy tricks that he could do with his guitar to just get the most ridiculous sounds that you ever heard. That is so cool. That is super cool. So they wow. were they thought outside of the box on a constant basis. What am I? What did I say? Genius. Mm-hmm. They really were. And White Queen is, I think, one of their most unique and interesting compositions. And this is this is a, it's a true uh, hidden gem. And also, we, as you notice, the white queen is on the white side, but we're also going to have the black queen on the black side. Mm. But the stories are not related. That's but not, it definitely... That's, that's not a thing with the album where the songs mirror each other? No. Mm. Because if it did, if it did, then the sequence would be off because it doesn't happen in the same spot that black queen does. Hmm. Okay. It just, I think they just happened to both write um, songs about queens, and that's probably where they got the idea of, hey, let's have a black side and a white side. You wrote a song about the white queen. I wrote a song about the black queen. We can kind of turn it into an interesting way of presenting the record. Yeah. Yep. I like it. I think it's cool. I am, I am uh, not going to be able to turn this into a pun, so... We can go to the, <laughs> we can go to our gigantic trio of fun off of sheer heart attack. The tenement funster flick of the wrist lily of the valley contagion that has been stuck in my head all day. Yes. <laughs> so lyrically these three things don't have anything to do with each other. Okay. But they are always put together as a medley. Um, anytime that they played it live, they were always played together. Um, whenever people would cover them, they would always do all three as one. When people talk about it, they usually do all three. Um, Dream Theater actually has covered this medley. That's, and not, that's not a change of seasons thing, is it? No, it's off of the deluxe version of Black Clouds and Silver Linings, where the they have an entire disc of covers. They do uh, they do Stargazer by Rainbow. They do To Tame a Land by Iron Maiden. Um, Lark's Tongue and Aspic Part Two by King Crimson. I have listened to this. How do I not remember any of this? And then they do they do Tenement Funster, Flick of the Wrist, Lily of the Valley. And it's kind of surprising how well it works. Which just, again, shows that early Queen had a had a prog touch to them. Yeah. Particularly Flick of the Wrist sounds really good Dream Theater version. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I can imagine with that, uh, with that chorus line there. Mm-hmm. So, um, because of all that, um, I decided, what the heck, let's just put this all as one song on here, because to hear any of these without the other just wouldn't be right. So, is, uh, is Tenement Funster our Roger song? Yes, it is. Look at that. I knew it. 
I wonder, like, so when you were listening to this for the first time, were you just like, is is that Freddy? I did it. did think for, like, the first few lines. I'm like, what if he's just doing, like, maybe he hasn't developed his voice quite yet or something? Because I didn't look at the album titles. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize that we had already listened to their second and Sheer Heart Attack was not their first or second record. So I was like, oh, maybe Sheer Heart Attack is like their first record because I know the I know the cover being from Sheer Heart Attack. So I'm like, oh, maybe Sheer Heart Attack's their first record, and this is just like he hasn't figured it out, like a like a Rob Halford situation. Uh huh. But then later on, you hear what is definitely his voice, and it's just it was a weird like thing to hear that but it works so well i thought it was really cool yeah he's talking about a guitar but he's the drummer (laughs) yeah i mean he was a he he knows how to play guitar so when roger at least definitely in the 70s whenever he would write songs he usually would uh write about stereotypical like rock and roll cliche stuff like his most famous song that he sang lead on was a song called "I'm in Love with My Car." Oh yes, uh, it's it's most famous for being the B side to Bohemian Rhapsody, and in the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, one of the one of the great recurring jokes is them making fun of Roger for writing a song called "I'm in Love with My Car." I remember that in the, uh, but it's, the trailers. But it's also kind of a badass song. <laughs> I would say it's the best one that he sings lead on. Um, but it's like th- those are the things. Like he uh, he writes stuff like a uh, like he wrote a, and sang on a on the first album a song called Modern Times Rock and Roll, and it's pretty much just talking about how like you know we don't we're not like the rock and roll you've heard before. We're modern times rock and roll, and we are awesome. Mm-hmm. And on the second album, he uh, his one song on the on that on the white side is "The Loser in the End," which is about um, kids are going to be kids, and parents always get mad at the kids for being rebels. But you got to let them be rebels, or they'll hate you for it later. Okay, and, rock and roll. Uh, yeah, and then you've got Tenement Funster on the third record, which is pretty much just him. Talking about, like, I like to have fun. I like to drive fast cars. I love to meet fast women. I like to play loud music, grow my hair long. You know, I'm a, I'm a rock and roller. What you gonna do about it? So you're, if you're noticing a theme here. Yeah. And then the fourth record has I'm in love with my car, which is, like, as, as on the nose as it gets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then after that, he started to uh, expand his lyrical palette. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, the fact that he eventually writes something like Radio Gaga is just shows that he really grew as a songwriter once he got to the 80s. But that's not to say that he was a bad songwriter up to that point. It was just that he he definitely had a certain thing that he was good at writing. Yeah, he is not bad at all. I mean, this song, this song kind of does rock. <laughs> yeah. 
and just to give a perspective, this is a song that probably sits around the 100 mark on the ranked playlist. Oh, boy. So uh, that that's not saying that this song is weak. That just shows how strong their songs are. Do you rank these three together? No, actually, I don't. Oh, that's even more impressive. Okay, wow. I know. Wow. Oh, my. But, yeah, so... Um, so Tenement Funster, it's it's got some really cool guitar stuff. It's they really gave Brian May a good guitar, as the, as the chorus suggests. Yeah, well, he made the guitar. He he doesn't need any handouts. Yeah, but no, it's 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 a nice uh, it's a nice kind of slow mid tempo um, rock palette for you to put on some nice delayed vocals and some um, interesting little guitar tidbits, which they do. And it works so well. It's like classic rock in a nutshell. Classic rock 101 before classic rock really even, you know, came around. Um, yeah. Also on this, um, all backing vocals are done by Roger as well. So the only thing that Freddie does on this song is play piano. Wow. His voice is nowhere to be heard on Tenement Funster. That, wow. Are but there no, any, Bri no Brian either. Are there any songs with no Freddie at all? I believe so. I think there's just one. Um, by the way, I should take this time to um, to mention my source for this episode and that is a book that my dad got me called queen all the songs the story behind every track this is the kind of source that i need yeah um at this point in my knowledge something that literally tells you everything um so there's two songs on news of the world that freddie is nowhere on there's a song called fight from the inside that's sung by roger um, and Ro and John Deacon's not on it either. It's just Brian May guitar, but Roger does the vocals, the drums, the rhythm guitar, the bass guitar, and all the background vocals. Wow. So he's then, the one-man band. Yeah, pretty much, except for Brian guitar. And then uh, there's a song on the same album called Sleeping on the Sidewalk, which has Brian, Roger, and John, but no Freddie. I guess those are... Are those ranked pretty good? Uh, Fight from the Inside is, I would say, probably around the same as Tenement Funster. Uh, Sleeping on the Sidewalk is one of the weaker uh, uh, Queen tracks. Hmm. And then whether or not there are others, I couldn't tell. I just, I remember those. It's like there's a couple of instrumental things. Like obviously, Freddie's not on Procession, right? right. But I kind of that kind of also doesn't count because not it's not really a song per se. It's like an intro. It's yeah. part of a larger piece. Um, well, or something like Good Company, the one I had I had mentioned that earlier. Uh, Freddie's not anywhere on that one. Hmm. So, you know, there. That also strengthens the fact that they didn't just rely on Freddie for everything. 
they were they were all competent writers and performers in their own right. Super cool. That's super cool. Man, so yeah, we got that we got that nice slow mid tempo rock and then with a we flick to something. Yeah, we flick to something a bit more ferocious. Just a, a little bit more sinister even. I mean that chorus. Oh yeah. Well, even just that first verse with the where you've got the lower octave, the dislocate your yeah. spine if you don't sign, he says. Yeah. And so these, if you these two like ran together so smoothly, like even more smoothly than any of the transitions on this entire set, I could never pick out where it was ever because I would I would be watching the Spotify as I was listening to it. And I would just hear flick of the wrist. I'm like, we're in flick the wrist. How did I not pick up? Yeah. So yeah, it starts with that bum, when that piano comes in. Right. Um, so if you guys have listened to our bad music segments, Grant, what do you say is one of the lyrical themes that I hate the most? Um, screw the uh musical industry music industry establishment yes yeah and i i know exactly that like this is of that subject matter but it's not so on the nose about it that you are like come on man right yeah well well here's the thing it is on the nose but it doesn't use any of the cliches that's what i mean that's what i mean that it's not obvious about it like you have to pay a little bit of attention because it's not like yeah here's the other thing that i like about it is the fact that most people that write the bad uh versions of these songs they sing about it after they've already gotten rich and they're just complaining to complain they're complaining that they don't have more money Freddie is singing because he literally has no money at all. And the reason people usually do write that kind of song once they're already big is because they can get away with it. Because they they have leverage with the say like, hey, I'm, we're one of your biggest artists. We can say whatever we want about you, but you're not going to drop us. This was very risky. For Queen to do and really it shows the fact that Freddie had already made up his mind that he's going to get out of his contract he kind of didn't care if he made them mad or hurt their feelings when That's you're just, still relying on the record around. label yeah when you're still re- relying on them for everything and you're writing a big FU song to the people that are literally in charge of your future like that that's balls that means that you again believe that you can make it without them Now, super cool though. This song is tame compared to the sequel. The sequel. The first song on Night at the Opera is a song called Death on Two Legs. And it opens the album. And it is about as direct of a screw you as you could possibly write. And so much so that this was one of the instances where Freddie wrote it and Brian said, 
Freddie, I don't think we can sing this. This is this is too much. And Freddie was just like, nope. We're going to sing it the exactly the way that I uh, wrote it. Like, the lyrics in that song is, you suck my blood like a leech. You break the law and you preach. Screw my brain till it hurts. You've taken all my money and you want more. And then later in the song says, but now you can kiss my ass goodbye. I love that. Dog dog with disease, you're the king of the sleaze. Put your money where your mouth is. This is so rock and roll. This is like, that's it. Was the fin on your back part of the deal, you shark? Like, I mean, just like, absolutely ripping a new one like again if you're gonna write this kind of song you can't hold back you just gotta you gotta go for it yeah and i mean this song flick of the wrist is pretty brutal too but it kind of makes it tame sounding once you hear death on two legs well wasn't death on two legs about the record company that wasn't publishing it well, yeah, but still, they were still <laughs> in negotiations trying to get out, and it the the after they got out of the deal, they heard the song. In particular, Norman Sheffield was their original label manager. He got so mad at them that he sued them because he said that it was uh it was libel. Did he win? Uh, no. But at towards the end of his life, he actually wrote. He titled his his autobiography life on two legs the real story that is really really kind of a jerk move because you can tell like he knows like that definitely hurt him if he that's Mm -hmm. the title of his autobiography yep so again that's the other thing if you're gonna write a screw you music industry song it better hurt them. Otherwise, you just sound like you're whining. They wrote such a good series of songs about how badly they were treated that it actually provoked a response. That's so nice. So, so this is this is why this is also again, I would say particularly those two songs, Flick of the Wrist and Death on Two Legs, is why I hold screw you industry songs to such a high standard this is all making sense now we can understand lucas through the lens of queen Mm -hmm, because i know how good they can be and also how effective they need to be right and so you know other ones like with our our leonard skinner one where it's just like oh they're making so much money and we don't have any boo-hoo, but also we're 20 years into our career and we've sold millions of records. Boo-hoo! <laughs> yeah. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't ring the same. These guys were legitimately poor and this was a honest, in-the-moment yell of frustration from Freddie. So, in case I didn't make that clear, Freddie wrote this song. Okay. This is our first Freddy composition of the of the episode. Wow. Like halfway through. 
Um, a couple of musical things to point out, the rock and guitar solo section, which I would say of the whole medley is the most dream theater like thing. And so whenever they did cover this part, this is the part where you're just like, yeah, this makes total sense. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't know, like the whole, the whole flick of the wrist section feels so dream theatery. So like, I don't know. Maybe it's just a natural cover. I don't remember the cover. I did listen to it because I once did listen through all of Dream Theater's discography. I just don't remember. So now you need to go back and re-listen to it. Yeah. Now I need to go back because also now I need to re-listen to Stargazer because I don't remember that. That would be interesting. It's an okay cover. Now that I've listened to Stargazer 18 million times and also have tried to sing it 18 million times i can get through the first verse that i'm proud of i when i sing it i lose it in the outro in the outro yeah once once he starts doing the my eyes are bleeding i'm just like okay i can't do it (laughs) man that would be that would be a fun song to to play yeah oh wow anyway different episode my bad so um but we're still not done we still have one more song in this little series yeah we still have another another suite to this three-part uh deal and we take it down again to the lily of the valley yes so um this is this is almost it's almost like an epilogue and it's it's so beautiful and they actually they do quite a number of these songs throughout their records of just I I like to refer them as anecdotal songs, which is probably not like grammatically correct to say, but just to get the sense of like they're they're meant to be like little transition bite sized moments that that kind of just add a little little zest to the to the record to where it's not just like Here's this song, then here's this song. You almost have like little transitional songs. That is nice. Um, Nevermore is on on Queen 2, which comes right before March of the Black Queen. It's this one-minute little piano ballad. Um, you've got a song, a piano ballad that comes right after Stone Cold Crazy called Dear Friends. Um, Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon fills that role Um because the record starts with Death on Two Legs, and then you have Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon, which is maybe the silliest, most lighthearted song they ever wrote. That then just barrels right into I'm in Love with My Car. Uh, man, Night of the Opera, you listen to that album, and you're just, every song just pulls you in a dramatic, because after I'm in Love with My Car comes You're My Best Friend, and it just, it pulls you from every direction, every song. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they. I. I love the little anic. Anic. I'm just going to call them anecdotal songs because. Um. That's just the. That's just what I've always done. So, Lily of the Valley is going to also be our first song that takes place in Freddie's fictional world that he's created. The land of Rye. Because there's a lyric in there that uh, says, um messenger from seven seas has told that the king of rye has lost his throne so is this like 
is his fictional world allegorical or is it just nobody knows there are so many fans has never disclosed it and he has always been a proponent of i'm not gonna explain my songs i want people to put their own interpretation to it i like for there to be a mystery to it it's no fun once everyone knows what's it what it's about one of the big uh arguments to this day is what is bohemian rhapsody about nobody knows even the other bandmates say that they don't know that freddie never told them that it was just something that he composed by himself and it was completed in his head when he brought it to the rest of the band that the only thing that they got to contribute was Brian got to uh, was the one that suggested what if we put a guitar solo in there and he was like oh actually yes that would work there was the guitar wow are you asking if there's a guitar solo in Bohemian Rhapsody no 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 I was just I realized there wasn't originally one yeah in, in the so, first section yeah 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 so it fits, um, it fits well i'm surprised that he wouldn't be he wouldn't have like initially put that in because you know guitar is like a big big deal i don't know <laughs> so it's just weird thoughts from a guitar player who can't conceive of a song without a guitar solo yeah that's true. anyway <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, Freddie always intentionally kept this this mystery around the subject matter of his songs, and so of course everyone speculates: was this a was was the land a metaphor for him struggling with his sexuality? Was it, um, you know, repressed memories from his childhood? Is it? a place where he could escape from the uh, from the rigors of fame no one knows and Freddie never told anyone and so pretty much all we have are the lyrics themselves and the things that we do know about Freddie's life to kind of try and make some good guesses so it could also just be pure fun not related to anything it could just be like oh I just I like telling stories I like coming up with fantastical places and people and things. Yeah. Part, I mean, part of his that, artist spirit. That's, that's some of the, uh, that's some of that mid seventies prog in there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you think about um, like Bitor, like the whole Bitor storyline with Rush, where it's like, there's no, there's no meaning to that at all. It's just characters and fun. It's like cool. It's not to yeah. say there's no meaning. It's worthless. But like, that's just what the thing was in in Prague. And I actually kind of like that. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. I wish that like Prague artists still did that kind of thing. I don't see it as much as I think I should. Well, it's because I'm, Prague takes itself way too seriously now. I'm I'm making such sweeping generalist statements about an entire genre that I like could not hope to um, copy. Yeah, <laughs> if you if if you want to hear stuff like this, you kind of have to listen to like Primus, right? Like, 
but they they don't still do that stuff. Well, I mean, I don't know near enough Primus to be able to accurately okay. say that. Okay. Well, I don't know either, so I guess we're stuck here. Anyway. <laughs> but now you can really hear that by sheer heart attack, like even more so. I would say sheer heart attack is when Freddie's vocals like reached 100% capacity. Like I would say on Queen 2, like on Queen, I would say he was like at 70%. Queen 2, he was at like 90 to 95%. He was just missing that last little bit of sophistication and accuracy, but it was mostly there. And then by sheer heart attack, it's like, it's all there. Done. The full Freddie Mercury package has been completed. You can really hear his incredible accuracy, his tender touch, um, the emotive quality that he has to his voice in Lily of the Valley. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I like it. It was good. It was a good little three song, one song dip into their third album. Now we get to dip into their first album, their yes. debut. This is a song I had never heard before, but oh my goodness, is there yes. some really interesting stuff happening here? This was like Spoonman level of. What in the world is happening? You know what I mean? I don't even know yeah. how to describe it. That's the only other thinking I can have. Because it also just sounds like they're playing with spoons. Kind of. So what's, what is this song? This is Liar. Remastered 2011. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> on the first record, Keep Yourself Alive always gets all of the attention. Because it kind of, you know, even though it wasn't a hit, it kind of became like one of the signature queen songs just because it was it was such a popular live song but i actually think that liar is the best song off of the debut album there's there's just a there's a grandeur this is the song i would say that most points to what queen would do in the future yeah it shows them shows the most promise of who they were as writers and players Mm mm-hmm yeah and it's got it's got a whole bunch of stuff jam-packed in there like tempo changes and interesting you know there's some real rock riffs in here but there's some real orchestral bits in here it's like they took everything that was early queen and just mashed it together yeah this is definitely this is definitely one of the heaviest hard rocking songs that they ever made it's just every song that's titled Liar has a chorus screaming liar. It's just something <laughs> about it. But this is the most queen way of doing it. That it's it's like a full choir that's singing it. And it really like it does sound pretty evil still, but there's not yeah. like screaming in your face. It's maybe more like yelling. Yeah, this is also one of the most sinister sounding yeah. Queen songs, like when the when the liar comes in, it it kind of sends a shiver down your spine. Yeah, because it has a moment where it's it's this it's because there's a there's very much a religious church aspect to this song. Yeah, I have sinned, dear father, father, I have sinned, and you've got the the church organ in the background. Uh-huh. And 
you think that it's going to be maybe this like this even though you've got this big rocking intro you kind of think oh this is going to be you know a nice expressive contemplative song and he's he's bearing a song won't you let me in liar and then it just it turns right back onto itself and then as he continues to confess he's losing the 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 sorrowful um um like forgiving sound and he's saying you know i have stolen stolen many times raised my voice in anger and he starts to become less apologetic and he's it's almost more like he's uh like he's he's being he's proud of what he's done i have sailed the seas from mars to mercury i have drunk the wine time after time but then he will revert back to the forgiving father. Please forgive me. No, you'll never leave me. But then every time the liar comes back in, it just continues to crush his spirit until he just becomes angrier and angrier until at the very end, he's resigned to the fact that nobody will believe him. So he might as well just keep doing what he's doing. Mm. Yeah. And you can you can kind of get that that this is just like a song of throwing things back in the other characters' faces because at the end it's like he's throwing the liar back, but it sounds very sing songy. Uh huh. I really I really like that part because you have you have that guitar solo and then you have kind of like a breakdown and it's like speeds up somehow. Yeah, it almost becomes like playground liar liar. Yeah. Liar. Like it's like he's taunting. Yeah. They're taunting him. Yeah. Oh yeah. And oh, so, yeah. And uh and then you've got that great breakdown, the mama I'm gonna be your slave, and it just the way that it builds. Yeah, that's it's, it's very creepy and very um again, just very sinister sounding. That was the that was the moment in this song where I'm like, oh my gosh, I have kind of been sleeping on Queen. Like, this is just, this is, this is the type of song that I would obsess over. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know if that was targeted or not, but... Uh, I knew, I knew I could get you with this one in particular. Yeah. Like, when I, when I first started to put this set together... The first thing I thought was, well, I gotta have liar on there. Yep. <laughs> and then, and then the next song was when I was just like, well, then I've also got to have that too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Man, this this whole thing so far, um, all four of the songs we talked about have just been strong. Like there was no, oh, this must be kind of the weakest one. Like I could not, I could honestly not tell you which of these is lowest on the ranked. I have no idea. <laughs> and I guess we'll get there. But it's like they're I mean, so good to me. I mean, because I ranked each piece of the medley uh, separate, those ended up being weakest. But if I were to rank them like as a complete thing, then it would be pretty high. I don't know um, if it would be as... It definitely wouldn't be as low. I don't know where I would put it. I would say it probably would make it to like the 40s or the 30s. Wow. Man, um, if it makes it to the 30s or 40s, then there's a lot of good music. Yes, there. Oh my gosh. Yes, there is. 
Wow. Yes, there is. You, you have been missing out not listening to their albums. I'm telling yeah. you. I, I hope you're finally starting to understand why I've held them in such high regard this whole time. Yeah, I, I tend to figure that out with uh, most of our episodes that I'm like, okay, I, I get it now. Like this band that I've listened to a couple of their songs and I thought they were pretty good. I understand why they have, you know, 18 million monthly listeners, you know, or, or why they're one of your pillars or, or things like that. And I think I'm, I think I'm slowly starting to piece Queen together. I don't know how many pieces I have to piece together, but I think I'm, I'm just, I'm excited for the completion of the puzzle. Which I guess the puzzle has been completed by now. Yeah. Um, so, but we've still got arguably maybe the the biggest piece of this episode next, and that's the March of the Black Queen. I don't, I don't think you want to mention your Yoda puzzle. I don't think it's done. If you're not. Oh, listening. I did. Oh, sorry. I I must have just <laughs> not understood what you said. Yeah. <laughs> I did finish it. Okay, good, good. Man, there's a there's a there's a callback to previous episodes there. Yeah. Shameless plug. Listen to all of our episodes so you can know our inside jokes. Wow. I'm so good at this promotion thing. I need to I need to get another puzzle. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so yeah, let's go let's go to March of the Black Queen. The March good of Lord. the Black Queen. There's a lot to unpack here. Yes. So I was so you- definitely like when I saw the title of this, I didn't understand why you would put two songs with the title Queen as the band Queen on your second album titled Queen 2, unless it was maybe a concept record. Obviously, your explanation earlier made sense, right? So it's like, this is the black side of the album. So anyway, but yeah, like you said, a lot to unpack here. Yeah, and so you could almost say it's almost like meta. Like, they are the white queen on the white side, showing their softer side. And then, I mean, I don't even know what you call this song. Is it dark? Is it heavy? Is it over the top? It's all of those things and more. This is this is the pre-Bohemian Rhapsody in every sense. I don't think that they would have had the guts or the ability to write Bohemian Rhapsody without trying all the tricks on this song first. Mm. Okay. I mean, it definitely, it definitely, um, like, it doesn't follow the exact same structure, but just about everything that they did on Bohemian Rhapsody, they did here first. Um, they said that they put so much overdubbing and so many vocals on this that the tape ended up becoming transparent. And that they um. almost, that, that they almost ruined it. Because they they said that if they had put anything else on the tape, that it, that not, there wouldn't have been anything left because it had worn down the tape so many times. Because what they do, one of the tricks, and Queen was the master of this, is they only had a um, they only had a, an eight track, and so what you wow. do is you record your first seven tracks, and then you put all seven tracks onto the eighth track to where you free up the seven tracks that you just had. 
So everything's sitting on the eighth track and then you put seven more tracks and then you put that onto that eighth track. And so you keep doing that. So that way you can get almost an infinite number. But the problem is, is that it wears down the tape because you're constantly running over it. Mm -hmm. And so eventually what happens is, is that this tape starts to wear thin and I just, I don't even understand how they put so much vocal on this song. Not just how much it is, but how complex it is. Like, how did they sit down and figure this out going, okay, we're going to, you're going to do this harmony. It's not even just simple, like high, middle, low, like there's complex stuff happening and it's coming in and out and going up and down in so many weird places. Like, it's just, this is one of those songs that it's truly astounding how they made it. Yeah. From a logistical perspective, certainly. And from a compositional perspective as well. I mean, there's, it is still like kind of that linear progression, but also that they are definitely having fun with this song and enjoying the process of writing. Right. And that definitely comes forward in it. Which it's fun to listen to people who enjoy their craft. Mm-hmm. What a what a bone chilling intro with that with yeah. the piano and then the guitar bam bam mm-hmm. and then and then when those vocals first come in, probably I hope that it made you jump a little bit because it literally comes out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Yeah, and there's a lot of parts in this song that just come out of nowhere mm-hmm. i mean that that thing about halfway through where it goes down to just piano and he says you know spread out your wings you are an angel or whatever i'm like oh my gosh like we were not in this mood at all like literally 10 seconds ago even two seconds ago yeah really yeah so man it's, just it's yeah. just this song is just freaky in the best possible way and just again, they were they were unknown when they were making this. What a what a risky song. You can imagine how much time they had to have spent in the studio putting this together. Yeah. And I think I think also not only was this the song that they got to test everything out for Bohemian Rhapsody, but I believe also the fact that that Freddie put together this song gave the other members the faith to trust his instinct on something like Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. I think knowing that he had the ability to make this kind of song made them go, okay, he knows what he's doing. This isn't a, he's never done anything like this before. So is this like a big, big song for them? No, this is, I would say this is the ultimate deep cut of, of theirs like this is like in the in the ranking this is the highest ranked deep cut that i have of theirs this of all of their more obscure songs this is the best one so like they they wouldn't do this live and it would have a good reaction or anything like no well they 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 would if they could but they physically did not have the ability to recreate this live when they would do it live, they would do the the more rock section that was like 
three quarters through the I play with my left hand, I rule with my right. When it kind of comes in, I'll do the march of the Black Queen. Like they would do it like as part of a medley. Mm. But I mean, just with all those vocal overdubs and the layers of everything, it was just, it was physically impossible. Same reason why when they did Bohemian Rhapsody, they never did the opera section live. They would just, they would just play a tape of it and it would play in the background because it was just the technology that they had physically wouldn't let them. The only parts they would do live would be the mama. They wouldn't even ever do the intro live. The intro I don't think has ever been played live to Bohemian Rhapsody. They would always start the song with the and then they would do that, do the guitar solo, then the stage would go dark and the the music video would come up on a screen. And of course, everyone would sing along to it. And then they would come back for the and then, and then do the outro. But that was all... Now, of course, with modern technology, stuff like that would be easier to do. Mm-hmm. You know, especially like, you know, you have the ability to like get like a big choir behind you that could help you do all of the big vocal parts. Um, but it was just when you're in the mid 70s, like they they physically had no way to recreate this song live except for that a small little bit of it. So I think that that's another reason why this kind of be, stayed an a cult song. Okay. But again, I think that this is, this is the centerpiece of the album. This is kind of what, what all the songs are leading up to is this song. So you used a, maybe unintentionally a kickoff of what I was just about to talk about. So we can talk about the end of this song. It's, he says like, now it's time to be gone. So I guess this is close towards the end, and then it leads into something else. Yeah, it leads into... Honestly, it's a shame. It leads into the weakest part of the album, which is like a like a two-minute uh, wall of sound experiment called Funny How Love Is. Hmm. I think that if they had like ended with that... Um, and then gone right into Seven Seas of Rye there because that is the album closer. Oh, then so we I just think that, the song. I think at that point it would have been perfect. I just I've never really liked the funny how love is part. Uh, mm. It's okay, but I think that it's anticlimactic from what. March of the Black Queen just was. Yeah, when you when you do an, a, a lead up like that, you have to have something that's amazing. It's like having a uh, it's like having a twenty minute long epic without the satisfying reprisal, you know. So, in other words, Dream Theater's latest epic. Ooh! Oh my goodness! Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I actually kind of I actually kind of liked it because I I saw it not as a 20 minute long concept epic I I felt like it was a 20 minute long singular song I don't know if that's what they were going for maybe that wasn't what they were going for at all I I liked it until the ending I felt like if you're going to spend 22 minutes of my time 
you need to wrap it up in a great ending. And I just felt like the ending really missed. Yeah, I don't know. Because re- that's know. and that's the problem. That's yeah. that should be the thing you remember the most. Yeah. But anyway, I, uh, that's that's for a completely different episode. Yeah. Great chorus though, man. Wow. I just I listened to that song one time and I know the chorus like the back of my own hand. Anyway, so we are not talking about the view from the top of the world unless we are viewing the seven seas of Rye, which, I mean, that's a lot of seas. You really do have to be at the top of the world to see that. But, yes, so our final song, Seven Seas of Rye, like we just mentioned, the closer off of Queen 2. So we really did get the whole Queen 2 span, didn't we? Uh, There's still so many great songs that we haven't talked about, like Someday, One Day, Ogre Battle, uh, Fairy Feller's Master Stroke is one of the weirdest songs you'll ever hear, but it's also amazing. Ogre Battle. That sounds like a uh, a uh, Return of the Giant Hogweed kind of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, Ogre Battle is is awesome. That sounds uh, like a fun song, though. I oh see, yeah, I already it know. does some really it does some really crazy stuff in it. I already know that whatever I choose, I'm gonna enjoy my further listening but anyway yeah. we'll, we'll get to that in the moment we are finishing off with a triumphant up-tempo whatever this is i don't know how to yeah describe rock this. just rock song this is just a pure rock song but with some with some fantastical flourishes to it yeah, um, and- that 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 piano line is just is brilliant in of itself Ooh, that's true, yeah. So I guess that I guess that is a Freddie piano yes. line. Yeah, and this is this is a Freddie song. Um Man. so this I think that this is also a great um a great capstone to show again, it's still got all the elements of Cream's early period, but it is also the first sign of the pop direction that they we're starting to move towards and i believe also that that was why they put this at the end of the record is to kind of they i think they already knew what way that they were about to head towards and that this was this was an attempt by freddie to write a pop song that was his intent now if you listen to queen's first record the last song on that album is also called seven seas of rye and what yeah. it is, it's an instrumental demo of the song, but it is on the original pressings of the first record. So it was an unfinished idea that Freddie had. He hadn't written any lyrics to it, and pretty much it's a slowed down version. It goes, it's only like a minute long. And they just and the instruments kind of come in. And it kind of just like is this weird freeform jam that doesn't turn into anything. It's almost like a, it's like a next time on. Like mm-hmm. how on TV shows they kind of give you a preview of the next record. Mm-hmm. And the original concept was to start the record off with the real Seven Seas of Rye. But then they came up with Procession and Father to Son. And they were like, ah, eh, this is a better fit to open a record. But how about just as we ended the last record of Seven Seas of Rye, we'll end this record with the real Seven Seas of Rye. Man. And then it just... Go ahead. 
sorry. And then it just so happens to be the song to launch their career. Wow. So they they kind of uh, do. Do you think they really shoot shot themselves in the foot with that one, or like by no? I don't. First? I don't think so. No, I think that it. I think it's the correct way to end the record. I think that especially Queen Two is not a particularly fun record. It's a great record, but it's also really heavy. It's really dark. It's really weird. And I think to end the song with the most normal sounding song, I think is a great way to kind of just like have a solid finish. <laughs> the most normal sounding, but there's just... It's still not that normal sounding. <laughs> it is not. Especially that ending. What in the world? How do you write that? With the, you... with the uh, early 1900s, I do like to be beside the seaside. Yeah, where it's like, how did the... I still don't know how music theory-wise they transitioned into that. It just doesn't make sense. Anyway. That's because Queen has big brains musically. They they are not a pop chords band. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it helps when you have a PhD in astrophysics or you spend a lot of time with someone who has a PhD in astrophysics, you know? Or, you know, if you're one of the four musical geniuses that we've been talking about for the past, I guess, three hours now, you know, you're going to come up with really genius ways to do pretty much whatever you want. I I am convinced. I am convinced that Queen is Queen is a band worthy of my respect. Not not just my respect as in yeah, they've written some great hits. But they they know their stuff. They when they flex their muscles, it is Arnold level. Anyway. You said that. I am I did say that. I really did just say that. Um, we should continue saying that in our final thoughts. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and use this opportunity to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about Queen. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just got finished talking about Queen, the early years, and uh, we just finished talking about the six songs from this episode. Just to recap, those songs were Procession, Father to Son, White Queen as it began, Tenement Funster, Flick of the Wrist, Lily of the Valley, Liar, The March of the Black Queen, and last but not least, The Seven Seas of Rye. And now it is time to give our final thoughts about Queen. So, Grant, where do you stand on Queen now? 
Um, so obviously I said I was kind of at a nebulous seven. Man, if I don't quickly move to an eight, because I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I'm not already at an eight, to be honest, because this is nine songs that I enjoyed listening to over and over and over again. And there's so many more Queen songs I know. I just have to say, you know what? I'm at an eight. Queen, Queen is an eight for me, at least. Um, my favorite is definitely Liar. It was Liar before I knew it was their earliest. And then when I figured out it was their earliest, I was even more blown away and just impressed. Because I'm like, this is so sophisticated. This is way above my head. I mean, and I... I like the composition as well. That kind of helps, you know. But also just the fact that it was it was so well put together and they like they knew their stuff. I just I I always thought they were pop songwriters. Like their goal was just to write a big hit and they were just really good at doing it with cool layered vocals. You know, but they they know their feet part of things. They're smart about their music. And they like to write things that are layered. That when you peel back the layers, you 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 get more. And we talk about that a lot with good pop songwriting. That that uh, '80s uh, prog movement, you know, with 90125 and and Hold Your Fire and stuff like that, where when you peel back the layers, you get more out of it. But you can still listen to it as pop. I think that Queen fits right in there with just about everything that I've listened to. Well, I mean, some of the stuff today is a little is a little bit less than pop, but um, I mean, even still, you can listen to it as a as a casual casual listener and be like, "That's a cool melody. I like that." As someone who doesn't play an instrument, you know. Um, but at the same time, you and I as musicians, we can look at this thing and go, oh my gosh, this is the biggest brain I've listened to all day, probably all week, right? Man, I just, I just enjoyed, I just enjoyed listening to the songs, picking them apart. Every time I listened to it, I found something new. Maybe it was just one line here or there that I'm like, ha, huh, that kind of fits in interestingly thematically to my theory of what this song means or that that's kind of a neat little callback to that little thing or or something like that um and so i liked i like that aspect i think that i'm going to listen to their entire discography if i have time uh, we'll see if i have time um uh, before our before our next recording it may take a few may take a few episodes before I get through their whole discovery because they got a lot of music to listen to, but um, it's going to be, it's going to be really fun. I already know I'm going to find a lot of things that I did not give the time of day before. I don't know if they're going to get to the pillar status for me personally. It, I mean, it, that's it a hard, different. that's hard for any band to do. It's hard for, well, there have been some bands this year that we've talked about that have gotten there, right? But by the end of the year, by the time we do our end of year recap, there won't be enough time for them to have done that. Um, but it's going to be a really fun listening, and I will I will get some interesting musical ideas from that 
for my own writing. I already know it's going to be inspiring. It's going to be truly, truly magical. I'm just excited. I'm just excited to get into this band that I've known of since I was very young. And I think I'm finally getting that excitement about them. It's taken, it's taken way too long. We'll see if it pays off. I know you're already thinking it's going to pay off, but we'll see if it pays off. So I hope yeah, that... I, I know what you're going to listen to. Everything. So. Queen 2, definitely. I don't know if I'm going to yeah. start there. I don't know if I'm going to start there. I do it properly. I think I want to start from the beginning. Well, you'll definitely have an, you'll definitely get to hear a band grow by yeah. listening to them in order. Right. And I, I hope that uh, after this really long episode um, that someone else listening right now is feeling the same way. Um, and maybe maybe you will join me in that further listening and we can compare notes next episode. Um, so anyway, that's that's a very particular first thought. I don't have any general statements to make about music as a whole. It's just this has been this has been a queen obsessed three hours of my life that I will never get back, nor will I ever want to get back. It was so much fun to dive deep. So anyway, that's my final thought. Lucas, I already know you have something deeply philosophical to add. Oh, probably not. Um, <laughs> I mean, Queen's never going to change for me. Um, there will always be things that I'm going to learn, things that I didn't know before. I think that for me, now that I've gotten into this mode of ranking people's dis- and just seeing where in the discography things start to turn really good where most people I'm just like once I start to like get into like the top 30 I'm just like okay we're starting to get into some pretty good stuff it's almost like I forgot but like when I was ranking Queen um I there was like probably like because they have almost 200 songs in their ranked playlist but it was also very easy for me to rank because I already knew all the songs very, very well. So it didn't take me near as much time. Like, you know, of the 200 or so songs, do like the like 30. And then it was just like, oh, wait a minute. Why is this so low? This is great. But then it was because I kept listening. I was just like, but that one's better. Oh, and then that one's even better. And it was just like, I was in like the 130s and 140s. And I was just like, dang, this is really good. This would be like, this playlist, this would be like in their top 40. Wow. Yeah. And I think it was just like, I kind of took for granted how good their discography was. And now that I've gone through so many other artists that don't have as strong of a discography, it was just like, it really made me realize how great their music really was and how consistent they were. How throughout the entirety of their career, they they figured out new ways to write great songs. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, I started to get how not normal that was. Yeah, yeah. 
So I think that if if I learned anything, I think that that was the thing that I walked away with. I have I have a bit more perspective now that I've done this much research on so many other groups that that it makes me realize now why Queen sits so far up above. Right, because we didn't last time we did the Queen episode, we didn't do the ranked no. stuff yet. Doing that as a method of research, I would say, like, literally right after that, like, probably the next month, doing the bad music podcast. And yeah, so, um, so yeah, that would that would be my main takeaway doing research for this is just to really appreciate, in comparison to others, how great their body is. I'm curious to see how big these ranked numbers are. Um, man, I don't even know. The uh, the sheer heart attack medley is almost not fair. I might, I might go ahead and revise it and put it as one song. Well, regardless, if I were to do that. I could see it probably being in the low 40s. Wow. Procession of the Sun is sitting at 48. Wow. That's pretty low. That's Seven, Seas of, Seven Seas of Rye is at 39. Liars at 36. Wow. White Queen is at 26. And uh, March of the Black Queen is at number 11. Wow, so we didn't even break the top 10. Mm-mm. This is, this is very opposite of our Phil Collins episode, where they were all six with the top six. Well, we have also had two other Queen episodes. That's true, too. That's a good point. Good point. But, like, even... Um, I mean, wow. But there's actually still a, a very large amount of the top 10 we haven't even talked about. Like, we already talked about Bohemian Rhapsody, which is at number one, and Somebody to Love at number two. Um, but then the next one is um, Don't or uh, You're My Best Friend at number nine. And Don't Stop Me Now is at number 13. So we have that whole that whole three to eight chunk. Yeah. Ooh. And I mean, here's a thing. And the other cool thing is that, like, you know, how people like will most artists will have like a classic period that the top spots go to that classic period. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is varied. All time periods filling up this top twenty five. There's no one album or one time period that's dominating. Very, very unlike next week's artist. You like that transition <laughs> there? Wow. Yeah. Um, next week, we are going to be talking about a very different kind of band, but still a band I'm, I'm quite excited to go over. Ooh, me too. Um, we're going to be going back to the 90s and 
2021 has been the uh, 30th anniversary of, of the big grunge explosion. It's about time we return to grunge. We haven't talked about it since we did that Soundgarden episode way Woo! back then. Woo! I'm just... I love, I love the... Uh... I love the big four of grunge, so we're we're doing another installment in one. Place, so, yeah, so make sure you guys tune in next week for that episode. Thank you so much for listening to this long but hopefully fun episode. Um, if you liked what you have heard, please hit the subscribe button and um, make sure that you catch our episodes every Monday at midnight. Um. There are two links in the description. One takes you to our Patreon page, which has uh, lets you get access to episodes early, as well as you get to get access to our exclusive segment, the Bad Music Podcast, which is where we talk about an artist's six worst songs. And at the end of the year, this last, uh, uh, I think it'll come out on December 24th, Christmas Eve, we're going to be having our worst song bracket. So we're going to take the worst song from every artist that we've heard. We're going to have like a little college football or I guess you do it for college basketball. College basketball bracket and we're going to try and figure out what is the worst song that we've heard this year. So if you want to hear that and hear all the fun that's going to go along with it, make sure you become a patron and uh, sign up for that. The other link is going to take you to our Spotify page where you can uh hear not only all the songs from this episode but all the ones from our previous episodes as well please make sure you go give them a listen it would be very sad if you got this far and you never listened to the songs Mm -hmm. and then make sure you catch us on social media on instagram and facebook that's where you guys can get in touch with us and let us know what songs and artists you want us to talk about. Because every month we try and pick something that you guys have suggested for us. It's our way of saying thank you for listening to us ramble and talk about music. Yep. And that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music.